out now on Press Gang Records, Buffalo, New York's Wrong the Oppressor Cassette. Ellis Horse, The Project from the Minds of Rob Antonucci, and Ryan Hex Cannabis, available on all streaming platforms. War self-titled 7-inch, available in black and coke bottle clear. Pick these up at PressGangRecordsUS.LimitedRun.com Welcome to episode 82. As always, you can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Enterprise Hardcore Podcast, on Twitter at Podcast Hardcore. Uh, I'm Josh Lyons. Tonight, my guest is going to be Jeremy Smith. Uh, uh, shout out to all the Patreon subscribers. Uh, as always, I'll put the link in the bio. Uh, you can subscribe for as low as a dollar per month. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of incentives coming soon and hopefully. Uh, some live episodes later this year, too, that I've been talking about doing for who knows how long. Uh, there's a couple, uh, there's a few shows coming up in Rochester, but there's two that I'm going to mention here real quick. Uh, my first show in like 10 years uh, is July 16th with uh, Final Declaration out of Buffalo, Pure Bliss, Heavy as the Head, Only Shallow, and Coalition. Um, and a side note, I'm pretty sure my guest tonight played, uh, the last show I booked almost 10 years ago. So we'll have to ask him about that when he comes on. Uh, and then the other show, uh, July 29th is, uh, dangers, no man coming down, uh, only shallow again and agitated earth. Uh, that's at the UUU art collective. Uh, if I didn't say the July 16th ones at the bug jar, uh, there'll be flyers all over the place for these. So make sure you check the shows out. Uh, but yeah, like I said, this is Enterprise Hardcore Podcast, episode 82. Uh, my guest tonight is going to be Jeremy Smith. Uh, he's got he's got a pretty large catalog of bands that he's played in. So him and I talked beforehand about kind of keeping it to like, uh, I think like five. So we'll, we'll probably mainly be talking about those. Uh, a couple other things might come up too, as always, obviously. But uh, with all that being said, how's everything going for you tonight, Jeremy? Pretty good. It's a pretty, uh, pretty hot day today in California. But uh, yeah, it's nice, nice evening. Yeah, it was blistering hot here. Like I mentioned to you, I, uh, I, I take the kids out every day because I'm a stay-at-home dad, and uh, I walked them to the lake, Lake Ontario today, and it's like a four- or five-mile walk from my house, and they were in like a shaded stroller, and I was just walking the whole time like 
sun blistering down. Like I just like, I felt like I was going to pass out by the time I got there, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, 108 here today. Oh, that's a little bit hotter. <laughs> it was like 85 <laughs> here, but <laughs> I definitely would not have been walking to the, to the lake at 108, I guess. But yeah, I, I work in an office, thankfully. So yeah, air conditioned office. Yeah. So like I said, in the intro, we're going to be talking about like all the bands, not all the bands, obviously, but like the noteworthy ones you've played in. Um, but I guess before we do that, let's kind of talk about your upbringing a little bit and just kind of like what your musical interests were uh, coming up to, I guess. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I grew up in a, suburb called North Tonawanda, which was pretty much smack dab in the middle of uh, Buffalo and Niagara Falls, essentially, but it is in Niagara County. So I guess technically it's a suburb of Niagara Falls, but it's its own, it's its own city, North Tonawanda. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hardcore kids that were from there in Tonawanda, which was uh, a little south of us. Um, but uh, before hardcore, I was really into metal. Um, in 82, uh, I was eight years old and my parents went to a concert at Rich Stadium. Um, I have no idea what it's called now, but it's where the Bills still play because um, I don't live in New York and I not, I'm not really a football fan. So, But it was Rich Stadium. And uh, the show they went to see was like Loverboy, Ted Nugent, uh, the Scorpions, I think, played. And one of the opening bands was Iron Maiden. And Iron Maiden was supporting Number of the Beast at the time. And back in the day, I don't know if they still do this now because I haven't had cable in forever. Um, but on the news, like when a big noteworthy concert would come to town, they'd show like a little clip of it. You know, they'd talk about it. And they'd be like, you know, tonight rocks Buffalo. 15,000 people were in attendance to see blah, 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 whatever, you know. And... Um, they showed a clip of, you know, cause Iron Maiden probably played in like two in the afternoon. You know what I mean? Cause it's a pretty big show, long all day thing. And uh, they showed a clip of Eddie, you know, their mascot dancing on stage or fighting, whatever. And I remember seeing that and thinking, I don't know what that is, but I want, I, I like it. And so, you know, from there, I found out who Iron Maiden was when I was a little older, probably like 10 or 11. Um, so like the first stuff I really liked, uh, I remember in second grade doing my cursive homework, listening to Motley Crue. My uncle had made me a cassette with uh, Too Fast for Love on one side and and uh, Shout the Devil on the other. <laughs> so, you know, like, even though eventually, I, you know, I got out of stuff with Crue, but like, I, I loved like Maiden and Judas Priest. And, uh, I, I mean, Ozzy, I, I loved Ozzy when I was a kid. Um, stuff like that. And then in 86, uh i went over to a friend's house and you know he was like you got to hear this this thing that my this tape my brother got i was like well what is it he's like it's a metal band but it's not like any metal band i've ever heard and he played metallica as master of puppets for me and from you know from that moment it was like on like you know I, all i wanted was fast fast stuff and heavy stuff so um yeah and then uh March of 89, I went and saw Metallica. I saw Ozzy and Anthrax in there somewhere. Um, you know, so I really loved metal, thr then thrash metal. And then, uh, you know, I started buying punk rock. I started getting into punk rock bands around 87. Like I stole my, my uncle's Ramones records, which I still have. Um, he also had Celtic Frost. I got into them 
I took that record, never gave it back. Uh, Sex Pistols, you know, I started buying my own records around then, you know, and then I, you know, I don't think, I didn't think of it as hardcore at the time. I thought of it as punk, but like a lot of the bands that I was buying were like hardcore punk, like, you know, like Black Flag and, and Naked Raygun and stuff like that. But then by 19, in 1990, I was introduced to New York hardcore, uh, the Where the Wild Things Are compilation. And um, that's when I was off the races because I, I just thought hardcore was like, it had, you know, I loved thrash metal and I loved crossover getting, which was kind of like the crossover was definitely like the gateway. Um, but, you know, the first hardcore band, New York hardcore band anyway, that struck a chord uh, was Sheer Terror. Um, I heard uh, the song Cup of Joe and, and the line sticks and stones may break my bones, but cancer will probably kill me. Like I heard that and I thought that was the most brilliant line because it was also funny too. And I was like a dork, you know, I was like this, like this just this loudmouth dork kid, you know, and I thought that that was just absolutely brilliant. And uh, I wanted to explore more of that, you know, and, and I thought I soon found out that, yeah, the music was a lot harder, but, not all the guys who sung for bands were as witty or as brilliant, you know, <laughs> um, but that was really it, you know, by, by 91, you know, January 91 was my first all hardcore bill. I'd seen some hardcore bands opening up for thrash metal bands uh, the year leading up to that. Uh, my first club shows were my first VFW hall shows were like late 89. Um, and then, you know, all, all thrash and death metal stuff, but like some hardcore bands would play those. Um, but then my first all hardcore bill was uh, Sick of It All, Agnostic Front, Biohazard, Zero Tolerance, and No Joke, which was January 5th, 1991. That's and the that, classic, that's that classic tour that like everybody roadied for that, like, I, I want to say like Toby and Isaac and all those dudes were on that tour. I've, I've, I've heard a few interviews recently where they were talking about that tour, I feel like. I think that's, I think that's the 93 tour. Oh, is it? Do they tour together yeah, more than the, once then? That's the Sick of It All Biohazard Sure Terror Tour, I think. That's the one. Yep, you're right. That's the one I'm yeah, thinking of. That, right? that was 93. I saw that, too. That's okay. my little brother's first hardcore show I took him to. So I guess kind of backtracking a little bit, you mentioned, like, the, the Ramones tape. Like, was there – and I know you kind of said that you didn't really differentiate, like, hardcore and punk, but, like, was there a point in time where, like, in your head you were kind of like, oh, this is, like, punk, and, like, you kind of started, like – like, I know the Ramones were there, you know what I mean? But, like, was like were you already kind of aware that that was punk? Well, yeah, yeah. The Ramones, I knew it was punk because my uncle told me it was punk. He said, this is <laughs> punk rock, you know. These, these, here's some punk rock records. And, um, you know, I I liked it right out the gate because, you know, I, it, I could play it on my guitar, you know, and, and I was not a very, I mean, I'm still probably not a very good guitar player, but um, I, I was, you know, I was just learning how to play guitar and, and you know, I could, I could, bust out you know like teenage lobotomy or something like that um and it's funny because i remember oh god i was really young so where my aunt and uncle lived so my uncles my two uncles took me to a lot of thrash metal shows um and you know they they took me to, to a lot of shows they they and they got me into like a lot of the core bands that like i i really love um just because they had a record collection that i had access to you know and it's funny, this is just a little side note, like my uncle had Venom records and I love Venom. Like I really love Venom. And it was like the forbidden band, you know, because like he was just like, I was like, oh, you know, let me, let me, let me borrow those Venom records. And, you know, this is like, Jesus Christ, this is like 
I'm like 12, you know, and, and now it doesn't matter. I mean, there's shit out there now that's like way more extreme than Venom ever. You know, Venom's basically cartoon characters compared to, you know, stuff that came after. But, um, you know, he said, oh, that's like the heaviest of the heavy, you know, you got to ask your mom before you borrow that. And I was like, okay. And the next day I went, hey, my mom said it's fine. I never asked her. I never talked to her. You know, hey, my mom said it's fine. So he let me borrow Venom records. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember where he lived at the time um, and they moved, they moved from that house when I was in ninth grade. So this had to be the summer between eighth and ninth grade. And uh, there's a kid skateboarding down the street and he had a youth of today shirt on. And uh, my uncle said, Oh, do you know that guy? I'm like, no, he's like some hardcore kid from school. And my uncle said, well, what's hardcore? I said, well, that's what like punk turned into. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, how I really have always looked at it uh, is like, you know, not all punk is hardcore, but true, all true hardcore is punk, either ethically or sound wise, you know, or, or you, uh, so, um, yeah. <laughs> that <makes laughs> that that no, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Um, a big thing that I was thinking of leading up to this too, and you talking about all the metal it makes me think about it more like most of the bands you've been in aren't very metal influenced at all. And a lot of them are very melodic too. And we haven't really talked about like the melodic bands at all yet. I know obviously you live in California now and like the newer band we'll get to, you know, has a lot of that like California, like melodic sound, but like where were the influences coming from early on? Like for that kind of stuff, like when did you start getting into more bands that had like more melody, I guess, you know? Well, I think, I think an intrinsic part of metal is the melody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah not always vocally because sometimes those guys can't sing um but musically you know especially like if you know uh like you know iron maiden always had like the octave chords and stuff which i've always really relied on heavily um and, and stuff like that and you know one of my favorite bands and and you know and and it's funny when we get to dead hearts there was one guy who picked up on it in, an, in a review from like italy um, one of my favorite bands is a band called Paradise Lost. And they were a death metal band who turned into a goth metal band. Um, slowly, and their second record, Gothic, which is still very much a doom death record, um, their guitar player just is always playing melodies, but they're not complex. I, I mean, they're complex in a way that they get stuck, their earworms, they get stuck in your head, but they're not like, going up and down the fretboard impossible to play they're simple cohesive you know melodies and you know that's the stuff i've always gravitated towards so like you know i've always said when people have talked to me about music especially when people who don't come from our world of hardcore and punk and metal and all this you know i always tell them i like really aggressive music and i also like really sad music and uh sad music um, often has a very emotive, you know, a very emotive sound to it, minor keys, melodies, stuff like that. And I think it kind of came from that. Um, you know, Iron Maiden is the start for it for me, you know, and, and they are probably, they are very melodious. Um, but, you know, early on, Uniform Choice, Dag Nasty, like all that stuff was like introduced to me because like we hung out with this guy, Jeff Sanicero, um, who passed away uh, sadly two years ago um, but he uh, 
he was a little older and his brothers were even older still. And so, and he went to shows, you know, he started going to shows in 87. Um, and, you know, he would just be like, oh yeah, Dag Nasty, you got it. You got to listen to Dag Nasty. Oh yeah. Uniform Choice, you got to listen to Uniform Choice. You know, you got to listen to these bands. Um, but sometimes like Dag Nasty, the first time I heard them, I thought they sucked because he was like, oh, they got his Dag Nasty tape. We got to get it. And it was field day and that record blows. So like, you know, I, I was like, I was like, are you sure this band's good? <laughs> he's like, no, this isn't the record we need to hear. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, you know, like, like just that, that melodic feel, like, you know, I, I like, I, I've always liked speed. That's why my bands are always fast. And like, you know, I, I appreciate heavy and I like heavy, but there's gotta be more to it. Cause I think a lot of, heavy like mosh hardcore is like is really one-dimensional and like i want like you know i don't think human beings are one-dimensional and to just focus on the angry like beat them up rah 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 kind of kind of feeling that that emotion has its place but when it's the only emotion then you know you're, you're, you're shutting off a part you know a part of the experience and i think music can be the same way and i'm not saying we have to jump into other genres or anything like that but i think that you know music can be heavy. It can be emotive. It can be melodic. It can be a lot of different things. Um, and it can express more than one side of someone's humanity. So, you know, I, I think for me, you know, I, I'm a human being, I'm a complex individual. So, and I can't play necessarily complex music, but I can, comp I can try and convey complex emotions with music. That makes a lot of sense. And I obviously didn't really come up listening to a ton of metal. So like when I think of metal, I more just think of like, you know, like the heavy stuff. I don't ever really like, it doesn't compute for me as quickly. Like that there's so much melody involved with metal, but like, once you started talking about, it, I was like, now I kind of, I get it more obviously, but like, when did you like, when did you first get the interest to like play instruments? Like, was it before you played in hardcore bands or. Yeah, it was when I, it was when I saw Metallica, you know, when I got in, cause like, you know, to James Hetfield, what you know in the eighties, he was the coolest motherfucker that lived. I mean, he he was he was wearing you know the coolest clothes. He he played in the coolest band. He he looked awesome with his guitar. He wore it low, and, and he had just had that wrist. He's he's just the riff fucking master, you know. And you see that, and you're like, oh fuck yeah. And like, I was a dorky lumpy kid, you know. And I saw that guys that I was friends with who were also you know dorky and lumpy but maybe they had a little longer hair than i did they played in some shitty band and girls would be like hey what's going on you know so i was like okay if i want to make myself interesting i love music so i might as well try and play it and uh yeah that's that's basically it you know i i, I got interested in you know once i saw metallica it was all over you know, of course, I'm not going to be in Metallica. I mean, there's only one Metallica. Everybody knows that because every other band from that scene didn't even come. Megadeth's probably the closest that got, and, and they only got an earshot, you know, once or twice, like Rust in Peace and Countdown, Countdown to Extinction with, with what Metallica did. Like Metallica sold, has one of the biggest albums ever made, and Iron Maiden's probably sold like less than a tenth of what that album sold with all of their albums combined. You know what I mean? So, you know, it, it, it wasn't that I was going to be in Metallica, but I, I wanted to express myself and I wanted to just kind of feel that. And like, you know, I thought, you know, 
I, I got to do this. Um, and I learned very, very quickly that I could not play metal. Like very, very quickly, my hands do not do what they need to do uh, to just to, to play that kind of stuff. So, you know, I wanted to play, you know, Metallica and Maiden, and I ended up playing, you know, Danzig and Judas Priest, which are much, much simpler riffs. <laughs> um, I guess before we dive into the bands, kind of jumping back and forth a little bit, like were there like a lot of early standout shows? Like, because you mentioned going to the, the early 91 show there. Um, like, were there a lot of standout, like, hardcore shows between then and when you started playing in bands, or? Yeah, so, um, that show was really good. Um, so, early shows I went to, uh, that show was really good. Uh, the first bunch of shows I went to was that. Quick Sand with Fugazi. Um, Fugazi was okay. They were good, but it wasn't where I was at at the time. And Quick Sand opened, and Quick Sand were awesome. Um, you know, I saw, I went to an integrity show where they didn't show up, <laughs> which was kind of a theme for them for a while. Um, that was in 91, a lot of local shows. Um, you know, I, I remember how much I loved zero tolerance. You know, I probably saw them six or seven times. Um, you know, early Snapcase, they were when they wanted to kind of be zero tolerance, like they were so fucking good too. And they were younger, so like you, you felt more connected to them. Um, Slugfest, I mean, every time I saw Slugfest, they set it up. Uh, Scott's kind of like unknown band that he was in, he was in a band uh, called Cinderblock, who were fucking awesome because like they had two singers. So, like, while one guy was like kind of doing his parts the other guy would like do spin kicks and stuff so that was like really cool a lot of shows at the hamburg roller rink were always really good um and i think that place was only around for like from like 91 to 92 uh just because it wasn't you know it was like out in the south towns and like it's early 90s so there's no internet you know there's not much to do so like the place would just be packed full of like young people who are just eager to like get it out so like you know the shows were always really charged and great um shelter i saw shelter a bunch when i first started going to shows well a couple times anyway uh they were always really good and you just always hope that they, they'd play you today's songs which they did at one of the shows but that was 93 that they, they did um i don't know i was really in tune with like what was going on locally like i loved going to see discontent and slugfest and against all hope the first show, the first seven inch I ever bought at a show was the Against All Hope seven inch, the Breaking Through EP. I was in line to see another show at the Boys and Girls Club in Tonawanda, and all the and those guys were walking up and down the line selling their brand new seven inch, and I bought I bought that. Um, they were good. They were a good band. Scott Vogel played drums for them too, and Jay Galvin played bass. I think if I remember, I saw them real early on because I mean those guys were only in the band for a little while, so it had to have been early on. Yeah, I interviewed both those guys a while back, and I didn't know about uh, Cinderblock at all until I interviewed Scott. And I don't think I knew the, the other trivia about Against All Hope until I interviewed them, too. I think Jay busted that one out because, like you, Jay's been in a lot of bands, obviously. So he has some mm -hmm. uh, some fun trivia facts here and there. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw I saw Against All Hope. They played a VFW or a, uh, American Legion Hall in Tonawana, New York. And um, I was in the bathroom taking a leak. And Jay Galvin was in the toilet stall 
standing on the toilet. He looked over. He said, hey, man, keep an eye out for me. I was like, okay, okay, what's up? He's like, he like grabbed a bunch of beer from like the basement of the place. He was like shotgunning it in the, <laughs> in the, uh, in the stall. And he asked me to keep a lookout, making sure none of the old guys came in and <laughs> until he was finished with them. <laughs> and then they played and they killed it. They were awesome. They were real good. That band, that band was really great. Yeah. Buffalo's always had a really strong scene as you obviously know. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously, the, like like we talked about before, the first band we we'll really get into is Half Mast. But but were there a lot of bands before Half Mast? Or uh, my first band that played shows, we played hardcore shows. Uh, was a band called Childish Intent, which are are you know I wanted a, when I started the band um, in '91, I wanted a name that was like Suicidal Tendencies, <laughs> the best I could come up with. But we were also goofy guys, and um, you know. I, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of convey that we could, we called ourselves a goof core band because we were like supposed to be like goofy. Um, and yeah, we played a bunch of shows. Nobody gave a shit, but uh, we did like two demos and uh, I don't know, played like maybe half a dozen shows over two years. And then um, two of the guys in that band were going, were joining the army in the end of 93 and we played our last show. And I remember we played our last show. And the last song we ever played, we covered Sick People by Breakdown. And uh, like a week later, I joined Half Mass. So I didn't start Half Mass. Half Mass was already going. Okay. They, had already, they had already played some shows. Like when Half Mass first started, they had member ex-members of Baphomet, like the old, the old uh, Buffalo death metal band. And uh, that guy had quit. And they got two other guys. And one of those guys quit. And they kind of put it out there that they were looking for a guitar player. And um, I thought the band was kind of like a slugfest ripoff, um, you, you know, but like I bought, I bought, I'd heard their demo on WBNY and I bought it at home of the hits and I was like, okay, yeah, this is pretty cool. And then I heard that they were looking for a second guitar player because one of the guys quit. So like I called like the number on the, I'm in the demo and it was Nick's number and Nick was like, yeah, 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 yeah. come on down. And so I came down and uh, <laughs> I immediately was like, Oh no, you need a fast part in this song and you need this. And, and you know, and I started like rearranging their stuff. And cause like some of their parts sounded like straight up, like Led Zeppelin played backwards. I was like, what is this? And I, I don't remember. All I remember is like, we had that practice. We changed some stuff around. It was really gelling with some of us. The metal guy, the next practice, he he didn't show up. <laughs> and then we got my little brother to play guitar, and and we we the band became a straight edge band. So did you play on on the bulk of the recordings then, or? Yeah, I just didn't play on the first demo. Okay. They, they have uh, a, a demo called Nation Under God that that I did not play on. So I'm I don't I don't know if you'll correct me on this, but one thing I've always kind of wondered about with Half Mast is like with the whole youth crew revival thing, it seems like you guys were like a year or two before that, and like you don't get a lot of credit for that. Like I know you're saying like the early sound of Half Mast wasn't was more like slugfest, but like the later recordings definitely has more of that like youth crew and what ended up kind of circling back to like 97, 98 sound. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, so yeah, I mean we we didn't we didn't play great shows outside of Buffalo. Um, the records aren't very well recorded. Like they're not that great. You know, like 
early Watchmen studio stuff, you had to be like a good band to get a good recording. Like you couldn't, like now you can be any kind of band you want to be and you can come out with a polished, nice recording, you know, with Pro Tools and, and all the editing stuff that can be done. But back then, if your equipment sounded like shit and you went to Doug's and you wanted to use your shitty equipment, your shit sounded like shit, you know? Um, and, you know, like our, so I think the, the Sunrise demo um which is the first demo that me and my brother played on we had a drummer called turtle and he was a good drummer and uh so that demo sounds really good um nick's voice is a little high but whatever um and so people started really digging that demo and then we did the seven inch and jay who later ended up in harm's way by way of chicago uh he's a guitar player not really a drummer but he knew how to play drums so we're like you're a drum you're a drummer um because he was friends with me and my brother and he didn't want to be a drummer and he kind of let everybody know it <laughs> and so like i i don't know if he was that as dedicated to playing drums so like they're not the best records they're just not i mean it, it, it and and you know we didn't understand quality control we didn't understand the you know maybe we should have four record four songs on this record instead of ten you know, um, so I don't think the records were that good. And by the time we did get good for our last seven inch, the Deny Their Vision seven inch, um, by the time that came out, we'd broken up. So, you know, I think the status cassette is our best stuff. That's like a, a self-release cassette we did that was like pro printed and pro done everything, but the covers, the covers were just pieces of shit photocopy. And I think that's like our best stuff. And then I think Deny Their Vision is the next best stuff. And then there's a compilation song that came after that. That's pretty good. But by the time, I mean, it was too, it was too late, you know? And then, you know, we played four punches first show. <laughs> and, you know, within two years of that four punches, like leading yeah. this revival of, of youth crew bands. Um, and then my band after half Mass, you know, no reason got to reap those, reap those rewards, but we were also a better band, but, um, you know, we, we were right place, right time. So, but like when you joined half mass, like aside from like mouthpiece, like, was there a lot of bands like playing, like, you know, or was it mostly just like those West coast bands at that point, like outspoken and stuff like that playing like, cause, cause wasn't it already like chugga chugga stuff by like 93, 94. Like that's yeah, a couple was, of years before I got into everything. Like I, it was, it was, it was chugga chugga stuff and like metally emo stuff. Yeah. You know, that, that was like the big, the big the big thing that was going on, you know, I mean, Buffalo had fade away and fade away were awesome. Um, they were more like a turning, like they could fit in with what was going on in like 93, 94. Um, although I think they might've been done by 94, but they were definitely around in 93, but they could fit in because they had heavy parts because they were more like turning point, you know? Uh, but they also had fast stuff uh, and they had melody and they, they were like, that band was awesome. And I wish that they had stuck around and, 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 you know, really, really done stuff. Cause they, they had a sound that I think is, is really timeless. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was mouthpiece and there was a, there was cornerstone. Eventually they were a little earlier. There's also a band from, uh, from Chicago called cornerstone who also played like, like a faster style, like a not quite 80s 
80s style, but like close to it. Um, but there wasn't a lot of that going on. There was a band called Reveal from New Jersey uh, who were, you know, they were the masters of like the scissor beat on the drums. Their seven inch came out, I think in 92 or 93, but I, it was very few and very far between, okay. you know, everything, everything was slanting towards, you know, vegan metal. Um, you know, but there, but then again, there was also stuff like board against going on at the time. There was those crudos going down on, on at the time, you know, there were faster, like more punk hardcore bands, but you know, for better or for worse, that seemed like it was a totally different scene than what we were involved in. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Cause like when Spaz played Buffalo, even like there was some of like the crowd from the, the, that we're talking about, but it was more like the punkier, like, you know, um, yeah. And, and power violence was going on too, but that was like a whole nother world. That was definitely like a West coast thing. Right. And, uh, you know, before the internet, like, you know, you'd order those records and get them like two years later. So, yeah, that was a thing too. Like waiting like a month for records. Right. Um, did you like, so with half mass, did you play in the band? Like right till the very end, I guess, or. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and was there like a, like a final show or anything like that or. Well, okay. So half mass broke up once in the middle and then reformed without Billy page, but with far side on bass. So we played like a last show in like 94 and then six weeks later we were back <laughs> with a little bit of a revamped lineup. And then um, we broke up on tour in 96. Uh, it was just like a miscommunication and a big conflict between Nick, and the, the singer Nick and I. Um, we came to pick, so Here's a, here's something that you don't do in the middle of your tour. You don't do your home show. You either do your home show at the beginning or the end. In the middle, uh, but this tour, for whatever reason, the home show was in the middle. And then we were going on to play Ithaca and then we we're playing CBGBs and then we were doing like another week's shows. Well, you know, we got back, we got back the, the night before we played our home show. Everybody, instead of all sleeping at the same place, everybody went to their own houses and to sleep. And I, I thought that was a bad idea. I was like, we should all just sleep in the same place, keep in that tour mode. Nobody wanted to do it. And uh, we go to pick up Nick and he's like sitting at the kitchen table with his girlfriend. And they've obviously had some kind of fight. And he's like, I can't leave right now. And we're like, okay. And it was like, there was like three of us and we still had to go pick up like, uh, we still had to go pick up our drummer and we had to, or no, we had to go pick up our other guitar player and somebody else. And there was like, okay, well, well, they live, they live 45 minutes out of the way. So we're going to get them and we're going to come back and get you. Then we're going to go on to Ithaca. So we went and got in, we came back. Their status hasn't changed. They're still sitting at the kitchen table. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's funny now in hindsight, you know, I was really mad and, and eventually Nick got really mad at me. Cause I, I was just like, I was like, dude, we got to go. And then we, he started yelling at me and I was like, well, fuck you. And he goes, why don't you just go play the fucking show without me then? And I said, all right, see ya. And uh, he jumped through a screen door and tried to fight me. And I remember holding a, a pencil to his forehead and like laughing at it. Um, Cause you know, I'm not a fighter, but I am twice his size, you know? And, uh, 
I remember our roadie like throwing him like because like he like like tried to crawl over him to get to him and our roadie got set off and wanted to fight him and then our guitar player poor Paul he was he was just he was trying to like make it all right he's like Nick you know we communicated what time we were gonna leave and you know now it's three hours past that we really have to go and like everyone's just screaming at each other and I was like fuck this and like we just we peeled out and uh we went to a parking lot like like a couple miles from uh Nick's house and Gerald who plays an hourglass who had been our guitar player the year before who wasn't in the band anymore was just going to follow us to New York and back and he was in his car behind us and I was like do you remember how to play the songs he's like yeah he's like all right you're playing second guitar I'm gonna sing and we realized that was dumb and that was the end of happiness <laughs> but at a no reason show a year and a half or a little over a year later uh no reason did an impromptu reunion that was really good so, so I guess that was something I wanted to ask you before, like you, you kind of unplanned sort of, so to speak, did the vocals for half mass. Like, did you ever have the interest of, of fronting a band? Cause obviously we'll talk about tuning later. Like, or were you, did you always want to play guitar? Uh, I sung for a militant straight edge band from Buffalo with members of half mass and Plague with rage and no reason uh, called nevermore X nevermore X. We did a demo. Okay. We did a demo and played like four shows. Okay, so you already had done vocals. like Yeah, but it was different. It was more like heavier stuff with like, it was like, it was like a third judge, a third infest, and a third integrity. Like that was like that band. So I was just like, oh, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't using my natural voice. I was trying to make a voice to sound yeah. hard. But yeah. I don't, I, you know, uh, yeah. That's still pretty, uh, still sounds pretty fun. Um did, so did, did No Reason pretty much start like shortly after uh, Half Mass then? Or? Well, first, um, Eric Elman and my brother and then me and Farside, we decided we were going to do a band. We were going we to pick and choose the best Plague with Rage songs, the best Half Mass songs and write new songs and do a, a band, like a, like a band, like just do like the best songs we could. We had one practice and thought, figured this is stupid <laughs> like these bands are dead for a reason you know and um then i uh i jammed with uh me and blake elman jammed with joe orlando from hourglass and and buried alive for a couple practices trying to do like a heavy band but like i could write a heavy riff but i can't write like I, I never know where to go with it. Like, I can't write, like, a heavy song. Like, I can write, like, one riff, and then I'm like, I don't know. So, like, we would just get stuck on playing, like, one riff forever. And I was like, yeah, that this isn't going anywhere. And uh, then, like, me and Blake just got together, and I was just like, you know, like, I played, like, this fast riff. He's like, he just did a snare roll and run right into it. And I was like, this is what we need to be doing. Um, and... Uh, I remember Eric came down and he was interested and first Eric was on second guitar. I was on guitar. My cousin Abe, who was also in Plague with Rage, played bass. And my brother was, was always pegged for the singer. Um, but then Abe moved to Georgia, like right after we recorded our demo, our first demo. Um, so he only actually ever played one show with us. And that was the same show I was talking about before that half best did a reunion because my brother, my brother was sick and stayed home and couldn't play the show so i sung for no reason because i wrote all the lyrics anyway 
I sung for no reason and uh, Eric played guitar and he played bass. So you guys, for the, for most of the band, you guys were a four piece though, right? Or was there, was there a second guitar player? Uh, yeah. Uh, Glenn Zemanski played second guitar when he oh, was still edge. That's right. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah. He, he only probably played five shows with us. Okay. Uh, and he recorded the LP, but he really, he really struggled with, like, he is a, he is like the consummate guitar player. He's an amazing guitar player. But I do things with the rhythm that a lot of other guitar players have problems with. Um, I do like quick change-ups. I, I'm not saying like I'm like this, you know, great guitar player because I'm not, but I have my own style. And like a lot of guitar players, they don't have the wrist to be able to do some of the stuff I do with the rhythms. And he had a really hard time locking in with my rhythm. And I remember it took him like a whole day to do like the guitars. And there was some point where I was like, hey, man, you know, maybe you should try this. And that. he goes, if you come in here one more time and tell me how to play guitar, I'm walking out of this studio. And we finished recording. And like two weeks later, he, he quit. <laughs> he, you know, but uh, yeah, he was he played. I remember he played like we did a weekend of shows. We played like Chicago, Toledo, and uh, Minneapolis, no, Milwaukee. He played that. He played a couple of Buffalo shows, um, and then he he was done. So I feel like Still I saw. Friend. He was. I feel like I saw no reason twice in Buffalo. I know you guys played like on like a Cause for Alarm show. Um, did you guys play either one of like the Floor Punch shows in Buffalo in in oh, yeah. I thought yeah, so. Yeah, we played. We played that that big show that was like Floor Punch, Hands Tied, Rancor, Atari, and us and Envy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was like. That. I had been to a couple shows in Buffalo, but that was like the first like really big like fun show. Like I mentioned, I I think the Spaz show was before that, and I I went to Slugfest reunion and probably like two other shows, but. Mm -hmm. I remember being stoked for that show because that was like, like that's the kind of hardcore like I kind of came up on was like the traditional and especially like the revival shit. You know what I mean? So I just remember being stoked uh -huh. about that. And it was my first time seeing you guys. And you guys had that classic, the Vision Streetwear uh, ripoff. Oh, yeah. yeah, the No Reason Streetwear ripoff shirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I still have one of those hoodies in my closet. I think I like I told you a while back on social media or I wore that out because uh, I wore it so many times back then. I, I would get so many double takes though because people would always see it and like be like, you know what I mean, like what the fuck is that or whatever, you know. So um, yeah, I had I, I when we played a lot of shows, I had a I had a, a pair of red suede vision high tops that I always wore when we played because like I don't know, we just thought it was we thought we thought Vision Streetwear was cool, so we did it, you know, and. uh yeah, we, I mean, we played a lot of good, that band played a lot of good shows, like a lot of good shows. And, and we always got a really sick reaction. And one of the things that we did right was, um, I, I, we got a lot of kids to come out to our shows too. And um, we had a mailing list and we, we made postcards that would list all our shows coming up for like two or three months. And we had like a, you know, a mailing list that was all kids from Buffalo. There was like 300, 300 addresses deep. And so we just like, you know, push those out and our shows would be just so good. Yeah. That band, that band was, was good. That band was, was, was really good. With I the, wish the LP recording was better, but with, with the skateboarding thing though, was that, was that Mark Gator that was in the, in the liner notes and the photos? On the yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was, he, and that guy, we got, we got enough, some shit for that. 
Yeah, well, I, I can imagine. And now you probably wouldn't be able to do something like that. But I can. But what, what's weird, though, is when I was getting ready to do this interview over the last couple of days, I realized he got like granted parole recently, too, didn't he? Yeah, he shouldn't have. But he did. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. he should. He should. He should. He should not be getting out. But Yeah. No. It's... Yeah, we got uh, Abolition, who was like one of the big West Coast distributors for Immigrant Son, the label we were on, refused to carry the seven inch. Um, you know, because and they 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 got into it. He got into it with the label about it. And it's because, you know, we had a murderer and a rapist on the cover of our record with no explanation. And we were like, well, it's, you know, and I was always like, well, it's a loss of innocence thing. You know, like the band's called No Reason. There was no reason why he did that. Like it was part of the whole package. Like you're supposed to look at it as a package, not just at face value. But yeah, whatever. The nineties were, you know, I, I am not, I'm, I am not anti PC. I think PC has its place and it's cool. Um, but like the nineties were, you know, everything was a touch button. Everything was a live wire. So it was like, that was just something he could focus on and say, yeah, I'm not car- carrying this record. So yeah, that was that. Now we, you it did well anyway, we did, we did fine with it. You kind of mentioned and haven't come up with the concept and writing some lyrics. Like I know, obviously you're, you're again, referencing tuning, you're doing the front man thing again. Now, like how, how, how far back were you like writing and, and like doing like, like writing lyrics for bands and stuff? Like was no reason the first one or. Uh, I wrote some half mass lyrics, not very many. Mm-hmm. Like I wrote like a song called, I won't forget. I wrote a song called hold strong. Um, just because Nick was like, whatever I wrote. Um, uh, I won't forget some of the lyrics to I won't forget by play with rage. Um, you know, that was the start of it. And then when no reason started, I was just like, I got songs finished. Here we go. And uh, my brother was totally cool with that. Cause then he could just, you know, just learn them and then focus on jumping and singing. You didn't have to put a lot of thought into it. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, that was really the start of it. No reason. Cause I would come with like finished songs um there are very few times where you know we'd work at as every i mean there were times when it did happen but um there are very few times where we worked at stuff like collaboratively i would just like show up with a full song or show up with most of a song and then eric would like add like one part you know or be like oh it'd be cool if we did this instead of that you know and did you guys i know you guys played a, like a lot of really good shows but you guys ever like do any like like touring or anything or is it mostly like regional type stuff with no reason uh we did a lot of weekends not a lot of weekends but we did a bunch of weekends and we did one tour that was a fucking disaster um so the first show the first show we get there and it's with isis in new jersey right and the guy who's doing the show is this guy chris ross who is the drummer of Ensign and he drummed for Nora. All right. Yeah. We get out, we get out of the van. He goes, don't even bother, bother unloading. We're like, what? He's like, there's only one person here who paid to get in. And it's a photographer who's taking pictures of ISIS. Who's playing, who's going to play first. And that's it. Like there's nobody else here. Yes. And you know, and that's when like, uh, I realized like, cause I've done a lot of touring, man, like a lot of touring. And that's when I realized, like, if you're walking around, a t- like, back in the day, now it's different because of social media, but, like, if you're walking around a town and you're near the venue and you're near the cool record store and you're near all that shit and you don't see a single flyer hanging on a pole for your show, you're in trouble. <laughs> and that was one of those, 
cases. Like, you know, we were walking around and we didn't, you know, we didn't see any, any flyers, not even in front of the club or nothing. And, you know, I just ended up being a pretty big band, you know, um, but uh, yeah, there was nobody there. And then the next day uh, got canceled. So we drove to Baltimore a day early because we were playing Baltimore with Kid Dynamite and then Kid Dynamite canceled. <laughs> and uh, it was funny because we had this kid, the kid Mike, uh, who was in a bunch of bands, he was in Pulling Teeth, he was in, yeah. you know, uh, looks like Rain, he was in The Spark, he was in a whole bunch of bands. He's a great guy. Uh, we're walking around with him and like he's taking us around the day before the show to all the record stores and all because if you do, you're a hardcore kid, you want to go to the record stores, you want to go, you know, and he's like going up to the flyers, the black marker, and like <laughs> scratching out kid dynamite. I'm like, no, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't let anybody know until they show <laughs> up. Um, and then uh we played a couple okay shows. We played with that that uh the guy from Stretch Armstrong hooked us up in South Carolina, and we played with that Christian band from fucking Sweden, like Blindside or whatever they were called. Remember them? Weren't they all like on? Didn't they do a record on Victory? Or am I mistaken? They might have, but like I, I, I think band. I know who you're talking about, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like they were like a big like Christian like yeah hardcore band, <laughs> and there were a ton of kids at the show, but like you know, on my guitar, there's like a fucking big Baphomet. <laughs> You know, I'm wearing a Baphomet necklace, you know, because like, yeah, we were youth crusade kids, but we were also like in the evil shit. So like, you know, we didn't really go over very well at that show. And then we drove, we drove to Florida to a show that didn't exist. Like I even called the guy the night before and was like, hey, we're coming down. Everything good. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We get there and there's like a fucking bunch of elderly people having a potluck dinner. And and then I was just like, he, this kid was supposed to be booking two shows for us. And one was even further south in Florida. So we're like, yeah, no. So we just we just drove back up. And uh, we, we, we played a show in Indianapolis, which was, we crashed it. And they let us play it. It was uh, Baines Saves the Day over, it was like a huge show. And then the next day we were already on the show, that same show in, uh, in uh, Chicago. And like, by that point, like we were so fucking broke that we just like all of our hoodies, like we marked at 10 bucks, all our shirts were like five bucks. And it was great. We did that because we sold out of them all. So like we were able to pay for like to get home and pay for our van. But like, we were supposed to have like 12 shows and I think we played like six. Oh. <laughs> it was bad. It was really bad. And like, it was crazy because like, I really worked hard on booking that, but it was just like the contacts that we had were not that great. And we had other circumstances working against us. Um, but that last show that we played in Chicago was unreal. It was like shy Halud, overcast Bane, 10 yard fight <laughs> like it's just like this huge like meeting of the tribes kind of show like yeah. the mashi metal kids and the youth crew revival show kids and that show was really good then we drove home and, and uh i don't know we we played we broke up that winter so we probably played like four or five more shows and then that was it but that it was really that it was really that tour that kind of kind of hurt morale a bit you, you know, know? 
I, maybe episode 100, not episode 100, because I got plans for that. Maybe like episode 150. I got to do like, uh, we went on a tour and it was a real disaster, like outtakes. Because there's been, oh. you ha- you definitely have one of the best ones. But I, I, I feel like there's been a lot of, especially in the 90s, if you were in a touring, if you were in a band, you went on your first tour. There's so many horror stories. You know what I mean? Oh, like, dude. But I six mean, out of 12 is, that's a pretty low amount of shows. Yeah, half Mass had some pretty bad ones too, but um yeah no that 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 no reason tour was was a straight up fucking disaster um now i guess one thing that i'm thinking of while we're getting ready to jump into the control and i and i probably keep asking you like did this band fade into this band like were you always like playing in bands pretty much like ever since you started like playing in like bands like basically like 30 years ago i think there was a year between no reason and the control that i didn't play and then, you know, as I got older, like between Dead Hearts and Old Ghosts was quite a while. And then between Old Ghosts and Modern Problems, which was my band before tuning, there was a little bit of space. But, you know, I'm, I'm always I'm still just always picking up my guitar and writing some bullshit. So, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not. And, and it's like. You know, it's stupid because you, you interview guys in bands who are like, it's just something I have to do, you know? And, and it's like, okay, whatever, guy. But, like, it, it, it is to some degree, like, you know, but it's also, like, it, it's, like, I feel the need to write songs, and, like, I always do, and I always have something going on in my head, and I always got to then transfer it to my guitar and stuff like that. But a lot of it also, I'm 48 fucking years old. A lot of it is that I'm just, I have a hard time letting it go, you know? Um, because like, to me, I feel like if I let that go, like, like it's over, like I'm, I'm officially old, you know what I mean? Um, so, you know, I, 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 I'm holding on to it as, as, as tight as I can, maybe a little too tight, but you know, I, I've always done bands and, and I, I, I truly believe that that tuning's the last one though. Yeah. Like I, I really do. Well, I don't know what the scene's like out west. Like I've seen a, a few videos here and there, but it seems like hardcore is turning into more of like an old man's game. Like there's a lot of older people in bands now. You know what I mean? Like and the scene here no, in you think it's, it's still a young person's game because the old man, the old man bands, they never, they never do what they think they're gonna do. That's true. Like, like, my, well, you know what I mean? It's like okay, you're playing to your friends, but like, yeah, like you know, hardcore is about young people. And it's yeah. always going to be about young people. And if there's not 17, 18 year old, 19 year old, 20 year old kids connecting with your band, you know, it, it's, it's, you're, you're not, you're not a tastemaker and you're not viable. You know, you could do it for yourself and for your friends, but it's, it's a whole different vibe. Like here, there's young people, young bands that are huge. You know, I mean, you're in the, I'm in the Bay. So South Bay, like San Jose, Santa Cruz, you got Scowl, you got Gulch, you got Drain. You got fucking tsunami, and those bands are huge, and those are all young people coming out to see it. You know what I mean? You know, it's not like if you go see Murphy's Law and everybody's, you know, got their AARP cards. You know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's a different vibe. You know what I mean? Um, and those kids don't necessarily care about older bands. Like they're there for what's now, what's cool. They're there, and that's totally cool. Like that's totally how it's got to be. Like young people should care about what young people fucking care about. Like, 
you know, it, it sucks for me sometimes because I would like to play to more people. But um, I realized that when I was 20 years old, if I knew the guy standing up on stage was almost 50, no fucking way. I'm not going anywhere near that. Like, I realized, like, one of the first bands I really loved was Twisted Sister. And a couple of years ago, I realized that when I was a kid, Twisted Sister were the same age as my parents. But I, I didn't have a concept of that in 1985. But if I would have realized that, I would probably would not have been interested in them at all. That's a good point, because, like, like, I'm, like, eight or nine years younger than you. So when I got into hardcore, like, there were a few elder statesmen. But I remember, like, when AF first got back together, there were people that would, like, like joke around and say Vinny Stigma was a lot older than he was. And even with how old he was then, I was like, yo, that's really old to be, like, around hardcore or whatever, you know? Yeah. And even now, like, I've talked about on here, like, that's the reverse for me. Like, I'm 41 now, and I, like... I feel weird trying to like associate with like younger people, you know what I mean? Like teenagers or like 20 year olds for like a hardcore scene or whatever. So like, I can only imagine how they feel associating with me. You know what I mean? Like I, I, for, for me, it's not, you know, I mean, the language of hardcore is the language of hardcore. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, you, 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 it, it's one of those things like you're there, you're in it, you know, you're, sometimes you're like-minded. Most of the time you are, you know, you're there for the same reason, essentially. Uh, and I think it's okay for old guys to be around and old because uh, there are older women that, that, that are around too. And I think that's okay. It's just the thing, the lesson that some of my peers and guys older than me, they, they don't learn is they have to understand that they're not the tastemaker anymore. Like, yeah, they can stick around and they're welcome to stick around. And like, I can stick around and I'm welcome to stick around and that's cool. But like, I don't get to have the say anymore. I'm not fucking steering the ship. I'm a passenger now. You know what I mean? Like, I, and you got to let the 20, you know, you can say, hey, maybe we should go left instead of right. Or maybe we should, you know, pump the brakes a little bit. But like, you are not in command any longer because hardcore belongs to young people. End of story. Punk belongs to young people. And if it doesn't, it's no longer hardcore. It's no longer punk. That makes, fucking, yeah that makes a lot of sense and it kind of gels with like i'm not gonna name any names so i'm not trying to shit on any bands but like some of the bands that are more popular from like hardcore or whatever now like are bands that i probably wouldn't listen to and the, and i consider them more like new metal like than hardcore right. but like it's what you're saying like it's what hardcore has become and like what it is to this generation is completely different than it was to like my generation or your generation you know what i mean like it's like yeah but the energy's still there i mean yeah. there's still you know it, it's it's not it's not that different because if you really listen to nineties hardcore, a lot of that shit is just fucking new metal. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's just E chord chug with a white guy scream rapping over it. It's it really what it is. It's just a different package, you know, because people are better looking now than they were in the nineties and people are more style, you know, more style conscious now. So the bands look better and they sound better. So yeah. if you're, if you look better and you sound better and you're playing E e-chord chug stuff with a white guy scream talking over it it's new metal but if your record sounds like shit and you're talking about veganism and it's 1995 it's hardcore you know who gives a shit yeah. like you know like i said like if it's a, if it's a if it's a 20 year old kid he says this is hardcore he's the one who 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 pushes forward the gender the 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 definition you know i could say what hardcore was to me and what it is to me and what i like but 
my context is completely different than someone who's literally 30 years younger. Yeah. You know what I mean? An 18 year old kid is 30 years younger. than I'm their fucking dad. I'm the enemy as well as I should be. I am their boss at work. I, you know what I mean? Like I am not, you know, I, I should not be there, but I am. So I have to be respectful, understand that this is their time and this is their place. And I can, you know, I can participate and I can watch, but you know, and I, I can have a band and I can do all that kind of stuff, but I'm not the person calling the shots. You know, I think nobody over 35 should call the shots anymore for a heart, for anything hardcore. You know, I think I, once you're 35, it's like, okay. Now, I'm not saying that this is the be-all, end-all, because I am not the fucking lord of hardcore by any means, but I just I just know that it's a young person's game, and it needs to be a young person's game. Because if it's not, you know, that it's cosplay, and it's not escapism, and it's not trying to find your way through the world. Because if you can't find your way by, through the world by the time you're 35, dude, come on. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, by the time you're 35, you should have some you should have some coping mechanisms. You can involve yourself in hardcore. You can listen to the music. You can feel that energy and that passion. And you can you can get back to where you were when you were a kid. But like a 17-year-old kid is not listening to the hardcore for the same reason a 50-year-old man is. Yeah. A 50-year-old man has has 30 plus years of experience to figure it the fuck out. A 17-year-old kid you know, has literally been dropped on the earth and sent in a fucking tornado to try and figure it out. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm kind of rambling here, but you know, that's, oh. that, that's just, that's just how, you know, I, I think you got to look at it realistically. And I think that, you know, a, a lot of guys my age, you know, they, they've been living in La La Land for too long. Um, you know, they're, they've locked themselves in this like hardcore package and it's like, okay, you know, yeah, I'm a hardcore kid. Yeah, I'm still straight edge. I'm fucking old, but like, you know, I recognize that like, it's it, you got to take a back seat when you get older. Like, it's just how it is because it's a young man's game. Hardcore is a young person's the the passion and energy that creates hardcore in the truest and purest sense belongs to young people. I completely, I, I, it's, it's, it's been said like that. I don't think it's ever been articulated like that. And I wouldn't really call it rambling. Like you were, you're definitely getting the, getting the point across there, you know, it, <laughs> right, makes, right. it makes a lot of sense. Um, but jumping back into like, I guess the bands, um, we were kind of talking about, I had asked you like if, if there was ever like any gaps or anything like that. And you said there was like a year in between, uh, no reason in the control. Like, um, were you coming up with ideas still? Like you said, you, you never stopped writing. So like, were you coming up with ideas for the control like during that whole time? Or was it something that more like conceptualized a little bit later, I guess? Uh, no, it was just like, when No Reason broke up, like I was heartbroken, you know? Like we broke up at band practice, me and Blake Elman got into it, you know? And we, we started arguing and um, he, was being a, he was being a pissant. And I was just like, you know, are you going to play the song or not? And he's like, he's just like, I'm just fucking bored. I'm sorry. And I was like, I was like, well, if you're fucking bored, you don't want to do this. Why are we even here? And then he like said something back. I was like, all right, see ya. And I packed up my guitar and I left. And that was like pretty much the end of the reason from what I recall anyway. Um, and, you know, I didn't want to play music at, at, at that time for a little while. Um, and I wanted to play music with different people. 
you know, of course, I ended up with Farside, <laughs> been in half mass with me, but, um, you know, I was just kind of like trying to figure it out, you know, uh, I'd put so much time and effort into half mass and no reason and, and those bands, you know, ended disastrously and um, during during no reason I'd moved back in with my parents and then I think I did I move out when it started when it ended I, I don't remember but um eventually I, I ended up moving out because I remember the when we had auditions for the control singer we did it in my parents basement I remember that um that's a funny story in, in itself but uh yeah there was just there was just like that year because like, I think our first show was like, so no reasons last show we played with grade. So I could look at Buffalo Shows Flyers and tell you whatever the date was. But I want to say it was like fall, fall of 98. And then um, winter 99 was the Control's first show. I want to say maybe, maybe it was, I, I'm wearing shorts in the picture. So maybe, maybe it was warmer out, but. I want to say the first time I saw you guys here was like November of, of 99 with kill your idols. But you, you, I always think I have a pretty good memory, but you, you clearly have a much better memory from the things you've been telling me so far tonight. So 99 seems a little early for us playing Rochester. Yeah. Cause 99 would have been the demo. And I don't think we played Rochester until uh we did the 10 inch okay and, and that that would have been a little later i mean i i know i have pictures of it yeah i know and because of the pictures i know i wore an snfu shirt at the yeah. show but um and i remember that i bought threefold misery by 108 used off a guy who had a stack of cds <laughs> on a table at that show um but yeah because the control really didn't start getting going until 2000 like we played some shows in 99, but it was like 2000 when it started really moving along. Was that now you referenced auditioning people? Was that your first time doing something like that with a band, like having to have people like try out to be in the band or whatever? Yeah. So um, it was funny because like me and Cac, our first drummer and and Farside, our bass player, have been playing for a little while. Like we've been working on stuff and we're, you know, we we're trying to feel it out and play to our because like. A cack as a as a human being is amazing, but as a drummer, he, he he fell a little short. So like we had to learn by playing with him, like what his strengths were. Like he could play like the one like, you know, kind of like pick it up beat really well, and he could play the fast beat really well. But that was about it. Like anything in between was a little sloppy. Um, so like we had to kind of figure it out with him. And I really wanted to play like an earlier type of hardcore, like a like an early eighties you know, like a seven seconds meets SSD meets minor threat meets Jerry's kids kind of thing. Like that's really what I wanted to do. Like no influences past 1983 in the band. Like that was at first, that was like, and, that, and the 10 inch, the demo and 10 inch are very much that. Um, and uh, we were practicing at a place called the metal pit, which had some shows. Like I remember seeing, I think battery played there. Um I've ever seen some shows there, but we they, you could rent out spaces hourly for like 20 bucks or whatever. And some bands like would leave their stuff there and a bunch got stolen. So like we heard that and we're like, yeah, we're just going to 
load in, pay for two hours and load out, whatever. And uh, we were looking for a singer and there's this girl, Charlene, who I hung out with her roommate. And she was like, oh, you should get Kevin to sing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know Kevin. I went and saw the Subhumans with him. Like this, the first Subhumans reunion tour in like 98 or 99. Um, I went with him and a couple other friends down to Pittsburgh to see that. And uh, she's like, he's got a wonderful voice. You should have him sing. And so I call him up. I'm like, hey, Kevin, what's up? You know, and he's like, oh, hey, how you been? You know, because we didn't really know each other that well. Like we'd like been each other's presence like a few times. Like we'd hung out just the time. We went to so I said, hey, do you want to try sing for my band? And I knew he was a really good bass player because I had seen like his like street punk band or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know if he could sing or not. And he was like, yeah, I'll try out. I was like, okay, you need to learn this seven second song, this minor threat song. Like I gave him like four songs you need to learn, like classic hardcore songs. He came down and we played them and it was really good. So we're like, okay, this guy's going to be our singer. And I said to Charlene, I went, you know, Charlene, I said, hey, Charlene, you thanks, you know, so much for letting me know that Kevin's got a great voice. You know, you know, that's, that's so awesome. She's like, oh, I've never heard him sing. She was just obsessed with him. So she wanted him to come around more. <laughs> So he, so she was like, "Oh, if he if he if he joins this band, he'll be hanging out more." <laughs> it was pretty funny. I remember though. I remember I had seen the O City Bombers a bunch, and I almost want to say they covered Seven Seconds too. So it was, oh, I'm sure it was, they did. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely he, great. He loved he loved Seven Seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I'm sorry. Keep going though. I, yeah, I was just I was just adding that. I was, I, I love. Yeah, that. so yeah, yeah so we, we we uh, you know we didn't really know him like. We barely knew Cap, the drummer, as well. Like we knew him from shows, and like, I mean, he ended up being uh, Farside's roommate for a while, but because um, he's a great guy. Um, but uh, yeah, we tried out Kevin, and right away it was like really good. Um, and that was weird because like there were a couple early control songs where we wrote lyrics as a committee, like we just like would sit in Farside's living room, it'd be like me, Farside and Kevin. And like, I would have like three lines, but the song would need like 12 lines. And like, we just like sit there and we'd come up with the rest of them. That was only for, that was like for the demo only. And then after that, like I, I took over. And then, you know, the band evolved and got more and more melodic and, and you know, faster and, and kind of more of our own thing. Whereas the demo and the 10 inch were very much early eighties, like thrashy or hardcore. Now, especially like these next few bands, like a lot of your bands have been on like, you know, some semi-established labels. Like how did the whole, well, go-karts, not semi, they are established. Like how, how did that whole thing come about with working with them? Uh, so, um, you know, the control really went for it. Like we really toured hard and we played with a lot of bands uh, and we played whenever we could, you know, and um, we did a lot of shows with Cheer Idols and a lot of shows with Ensign and Tim from Ensign worked very, very briefly at go-kart doing like graphic design, I think. And he was just listening to us in the office or whatever, and then telling those guys, Hey, you know, this band's really cool. You should check them out. And uh, there was another guy named Joe who also worked for Go-Kart. 
and he ended up really liking us. And so he brought us to, to Greg, the owner. And uh, that guy was like, yeah, sure. Let's sign him, you know? And uh, next thing you know, we're like label mates with anti-flag. I don't know how the fuck that happened, you know? Yeah. Cause I always, that was like a, there was a few labels like that though. That, you know what I mean? It was just such a like diverse, I mean, it's like you went send the beginning though, like with hardcore and, and punk, you know what I mean? I mean, right. I know some of that stuff is like more punkier, but like I, I could see a lot of those bands playing together though. You know what I mean? So yeah, the only thing that sucked was like we were not ready to do like a full length when we signed to them. So we just did an EP. And then by the time like we got around to doing the LP, like that label was about to collapse upon itself. Um, and, you know, we were the band was also <laughs> about to collapse upon itself at the same time. Um, but, you know, it, it got it definitely got weird because like they bounced a check to the recording studio that we recorded at for our LP. And, uh, you know, uh, everybody that we knew in that office that worked for them quit. And so it was just like, then we were dealing directly with Greg, the guy who ran the label and he was very aloof. I felt, um, yeah. So that, yeah, but that was cool. Cause like, you know, we got like a taste of like what it was like to be in like a pro touring band that got tour support. Like our van broke down uh, in the middle of the, in the middle of the country and, and they couldn't send us enough money to like fix the van. Cause it was like five grand. And we ended up just like leaving it there and getting a rental, but they did send us, you know, 500 bucks or whatever to help, help alleviate, uh, you know, the loss. So it was, it was like, cool. You know, we got to go to a real recording studio for 10 days in Brooklyn like you know that was that was the first like hey i'm I, you know my band's kind of on a bigger label like this is crazy you know why does anybody care <laughs> yeah you know so and also you know i i was i was always thinking band-minded i was always pushing it i was always like trying to like you know i mean i'm not a pma guy at all like i'm i'm a negative nancy through and through um and you know but like i was always trying to actualize success for the band like we're going to get on the show we're going to do this we're going to do this we're going to do this it didn't always work but it worked to some degree you know like i was always trying to grind out and push the band and push the band and push the band and uh you know once steve our drummer got in the band like i felt like we could have done more if he hadn't also been in another band that was trying to do he was in robot has werewolf fan and they were out there trying to do it like on a different level. They were way more DIY, but they were playing a lot of shows too. So like, you know, I wish that he would not have done that band. And I think I was very, you know, it just added some tension to the band at the time. Cause like, I, I probably wasn't very quiet about that, you know, um, that he was, and I was very jealous of robot head werewolf hand because although we had a lot of amazing shows, it seemed like, they were more connected to community than we were. And uh, I was like, why can't we have that? It's like, oh, cause I'm an asshole. That's why we can't have that. <laughs> cause I'm jealous of robot as werewolf fan. That's why we can't have that, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I wish we could have done more and I would have glad, you know, there was a time in my life where I would have sacrificed everything that wasn't part of the band to make the band do something. That's and, I'm sorry. That, that's what I was going to kind of ask you, though, was 
was there ever because this was around that era like was there ever a point in time where you were like i i want to try and like be more like a a full-time touring band type thing or that was always the dream that was always my goal was like i want to tour nonstop, and this is what i want to do um but you know you the control wasn't making any money so you got you got to work a job you know and uh yeah, I mean, you, you you have to you have to have a job, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you know, I was willing to crash on couches. I was willing to go that, but nobody else really was. You know, certainly the other guys were. And Kevin Kevin quit the controls, so you know, and he was our best asset. Our front person was the best asset. We we tried to replace him with a Joker, and the band lasted like four shows with that guy. So, and then it just pretty much faded out after that, or. Yeah, well, the guy, the guy we replaced, the guy we replaced Kevin with was completely insane. So, um, and not in a good way. So, like, yeah. So we broke up. Uh, we played like three or four shows on that last tour, and then Bill was like, or Farside was just like, "Yo, man, I'm not playing any more shows with this kid." And then. Like 10 minutes later, that kid was like screaming at Bill, like, you're not my father. And Bill was like, yo, this kid's fucking crazy. And we're like, I'm like, yeah, I can't do this. And so we, me and Bill made the decision to break me and Farside made the decision to break up the control because we didn't have a singer. And then the next night, Kevin calls and said, yo, I'll quit my job. I'll do the tour. And I had already written like 27 emails canceling every single show i was like it's done it's, and we were playing such so many amazing shows on that tour i that was the hardest i ever worked on booking a tour and we were playing such huge shows um yeah it was crazy we were playing like the last holding on shows of modern life is war and killer idols there were like three of those in the midwest we were playing like gilman street with with like strike anywhere or something like that and, like playing with like over my dead body in, in San Diego where they were huge when they were huge. We were playing like all these like wild ass, like huge shows. And it was like, and our LP had just come out and like, you know, we were playing with tragedy again somewhere, I think in Portland, you know, like, like it was gonna, it was going to be a good tour. Um, but yeah, that was the end. That was the end of the control. That's and sad. then I, on the drive. So on right after the control ended, uh, my brother and Jared, uh, Jared from No Time Left and Gas Chamber and does out their records. They were our roadies on that on that last tour, and I remember like pulling up to our practice space after the band had broken up and talking to them, and I'd be like, "Guys, let's do a Danzig band." <laughs> and they're like, "All right." So we started a band called The Dark Path like the next day. <laughs> uh-huh. That's pretty funny. Was that was that when Jared was in No Time Left around that time, or was that? I think No Time Left had just broken up as well. Yeah, yeah. So how long how long was it till was it like a year or so till Dead Hearts started? If I'm if my timelines about uh, right? yeah. So yeah. So that was summer summer of 2003 when the control broke up, um, and then summer of 2000. Four was the first Dead Hearts show. Okay. That came together. That was that came together so quickly. Yeah. Like, so like I had done the Dark Path, which is like our Danzig band. We did a demo. We played one show, 
And uh, then I was like, you know, that didn't really work. So we were just like my hardcore kids trying to play like metal, like satanic metal. And it was just like, it worked, but it didn't work. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm 30 years old. At that point I was 30. I was like, I'm not going to do another band. Like, you know, so I got like a real job and like, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I'm working like this real, I'm working at a rich Proch corporation, you know, as their director of security. And I'm just like, I got like a real job and like, you know, I'm like, okay, I got a career now or whatever. It was really my first wife's fault. My ex-wife, Shannon, she, for Christmas 2003, she bought me an acoustic guitar. And at that point I wasn't, I was barely playing. Like I was never like opening up my guitar case and playing guitar. She bought me an acoustic guitar. So I'm just sitting in my living room, like just playing for like hours. And next thing you know, I have like, I had, I wrote a song called forever. And I wrote a song called bright lights, burnt city, like literally just sitting in my living room. Um, and those, both those songs appear on the, the first dead hearts demo. So I, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote those songs and I was like, damn, these songs are really good. Like I knew, I knew, I, you, you know, I, I'm not tuning my horn. Like you can tell when you write a good song, like that's, that's part of, hold on. I gotta, I gotta lean back. My back is killing me here. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of like part of how it goes. Like, you know, some songs are better than others. Sometimes you don't know that a song is better than another, but sometimes you do. And uh, I, I wrote those two songs. I was like, man, these are good. And I was like, eh, I should start a band. No, I'm not going to start a band. And then I, I said to Sharon, my first wife, I said, you know, it's okay if I maybe play in a band. She's like, yeah, do whatever. It's what you do. Yeah, do whatever you do. And there's a band called The Alleged. Do you remember The Alleged? Yep. So um, Paulie, their original guitar player, uh, I met him because we both had a mutual friend named Aaron. He's a cool guy. And uh, they did a demo called Whitewashed in American Pride, which I found the CDR the other day, actually. It's going through some stuff. Um, and I really thought, and some other people have mentioned it too, that the first alleged demo, when it was Polly and Aaron singing and a couple other, and, and Richie playing drums and all that, really kind of sounded like a control worship band. Like it was very similar to what we were doing. And I was, I remember hearing that and thinking, man, that Polly guy plays guitar a lot like I do. And the alleged called me and asked me if I wanted to come down and maybe play set guitar for him. And this is after Polly was out of the band. This was Sweep Play Guitar. It was like a totally different band, different vibe. So I go to their band practice and it's like, yeah, these songs are okay. But I don't know, you know, Sweeper, the way Sweeper writes songs, it's very judgy. It's very uh, integrity. It's, it, you know, it's, 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 it's not very punk. And you know, like the stuff I do usually has a punk edge to it. Not saying, I'm not saying anything despairing how he writes, just, just how he writes songs. You know, it's, it's, it's heavier. And I was like, yeah, it's okay. I don't know. I was kind of on the fence and then sweeper calls me and he says, Hey, I want to throw out Aaron. That was the singer. I want to throw out Aaron. Have you play guitar and we'll get a new singer. 
I'm like, uh, what do you think? He's like, what do you think about that? I'm like, uh, I mean, it's your band. Do whatever you want. And later that night, I worked at a hotel overnight at the time. And uh, I get I get on uh, the internet. And uh, did I work at a hotel at the time? No, I didn't. This was after that. This is after I had a career. So I, I'm on AIM. I have instant messenger up. And I bloop, Aaron Adkins, the singer like this, was like, hey, I want to throw Sweeper out of the band. <laughs> And install you as the new guitar player. Drop all these songs or write new songs. More in the spirit of the first demo. And I'm like, man, I do not want to join a band with this much drama that I'm not that interested in anyway. But their drummer is really good. So I sent Sweeper a message. I said, hey, man, would you mind if I asked Richie to play with me? You know, I don't want to be in the legend. And he goes, yeah, here's his number, but he's not going to want to do anything. That's what he tells me. He's, like, He's not going to want to do it. I'm like, okay, well, thanks for his number. And so I text him and I'm like, hey, man, are you interested? He's like, yeah, kind of. I'm like, all right, cool. And I called up Paulie. I say, hey, Paul, you want to start a band? I say, I don't know, guy. I said, all right, well, He's like, come over with your guitar. And so I went over to his house and we like started working on stuff and the chemistry was instantly there on guitar. Uh, probably the most chemistry I've ever had with a band member, like guitar playing wise. Uh, we worked with each other really well. We played off each other's strengths really well. And I was like, okay, well, I got a drummer, I got a guitar player. Can I Say was playing their last show. I was, I wouldn't say I was the biggest Can I Say fan, but I was a big fan of Derek's voice. His timing left something to be desired, but his voice was like, it was there and I could hear it. And so I went to the last Can I Say show, and after they were done, I said, hey, Derek, I'm putting a band together. Would you be interested in singing? I already have two songs written. You don't even have to write lyrics. He said, yeah, I think so. I was like, but we need a bass player. And he's like, oh. I was like, I, want, I wanted to ask their bass player, Can I Say? And he's like, no, <laughs> no, we're not going to ask him. I don't want to be in a band with that guy. He's my friend, but no. I was like, okay, because he he would play slack bass every now and then, and I think that kind of annoyed him. Uh, so he's like, I'm going to ask Tom. So he asked Tom, who was the guitar player, can I say? Uh, and Tom's a really good guitar player, but he's also a really good bass player, even though that's not his main instrument. Uh, and that's how that's how Dead Hearts formed. We got to that first practice, and I was like, here are the two songs I have written, and I had originally written the song Forever as a straight edge song. The song's called Forever. That's a very straight edge thing. Like I want to be straight edge forever. Uh, but the band, you know, not everybody that was in that room was straight edge. So I changed it to be about love. <laughs> I changed it about, you know, uh, I changed like two lines and it made about relationship stuff. And that really struck a chord with people. But like we played those two songs at practice. Everyone was like, wow. Like we gelled instantly. The chemistry was there instantly. And then Polly had written a song, which became Dear, Gen Dear Jane Letter. He'd written the, the, the music for. And he had shown me that the time I went over to his house before the band was together. And we worked on that. And all of a sudden we had three songs. And then I had a song called Heart Shaped Coffin that I'd written. And uh, we had two other songs. And like it happened like, real quick. Like real quick. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely something Derek said. And then like I was mentioning earlier with the lyrics, like when Derek mentioned to me that you had written like a lot of the lyrics for the band, that's when I started thinking, I was like, oh, I wonder 
if he's been writing lyrics for a lot of bands over the years, you know? So yeah, the, the control stuff, uh, the 10 inch, the first two, and the two seven inches, that's all me. And then I had, when the control wrote our LP glass eye, which I, I don't really care for. I only like like two songs off of it. And I just listened to it again, like two weeks ago. Um, I had writer's block really bad. Like I couldn't come up with anything interesting musically. I couldn't come up with any lyrics. Um, so Kevin was just like, I'll take a shot at it. And that's why the kind of the lyrics are very, very different on the control LP than they were on any other stuff. They're good. Um, I just wish the music was better uh, because it, it was, there were too many cooks. There were just too many cooks for the control LP. But for Dead Hearts, at first, it was like, I would just show up with, so Dear Jane Letter, the music was written by Pauly, but the lyrics were written by me. The music and lyrics for the other songs of the demo were all written by me. Uh, the the seven-inch after, the first seven-inch, the self-titled seven-inch, um, I wrote the music to all the songs, the lyrics to Breakdown and Small Town Tragedy as well. But then uh, in our hands, once again, um, the original lyrics I wrote for that were, when we were young, do, 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 do. And then they were like, we can't use those lyrics. And I was like, why? They're like, well, because American Nightmare uses the line when we were young. And I was like, American Nightmare does not have carte blanche on the American vernacular. Like, they, it's just a, you know, they're like, no, it's too close. It's too close. So, um, uh, uh, we like, like, uh, Derek, uh, Tom and I sat down and we kind of like mapped out what the intro was going to say. And that ended up happening again on the, on the No Love, No Hope record. Um, I had written some lyrics and there was like, it, it was just like the same line repeated over and over again. And uh, Tom was like, no, this needs like two more lines. And he quickly came up with something. So that, that makes me wonder too. Cause I was thinking when you were like, Jamie Jasta has this thing called like lyric police or whatever. Like, well, you, you'll, you'll like be like, like, do you ever check to see like, if you've written lyrics before, like, like, I guess like, when you're writing lyrics for tuning, for example, are you, are you ever like, oh man, I kind of use the theme like this for the control or, or something like that? You know what I mean? Well, you know, my lyrics haven't really changed much. Like it's still in like, I, I sing a lot about relationships, you know, um, for the most part. I mean, I'll, you know, it's just like, like Dio. Dio is going to rhyme the word magic with tragic and lightning with frightening, you know, you know, he's going to talk about the never ending wheels. It, it's, it's, you know, it's going to happen. But I will say that um, there was a song written for the unreleased, uh, for the unrecorded uh, second Dead Hearts LP. I used some of those lyrics for the band Reason I did briefly. And then uh, I used a couple of lines and some of the ideas again for tuning. And that's why the song's called Repri or Reprise or Reprise, because I'm reprising <laughs> some of the lyrical themes. Um, I mean, but I, I don't, I, I, I go, I make sure that I don't say the same thing again. And if I do, it's intentional. Okay. So 
I'm guessing you'll tell me business-wise they were a lot different too, but even like on the surface, obviously go-kart and ferret are, are pretty different labels. Um, was, was there, was there a pretty drastic difference for you working with ferret for, for this band versus working with go-kart with the control? Okay, well, let's, 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 let's back up a little bit. So yep. dead hearts did, dead hearts did our demo. Uh, and I, we sold 350 of those, which that's a lot for a fucking demo. Mm-hmm. Especially because I was burning them in my, on my computer every CDR. This is back to CDR days. Everybody had a CDR demo. And we started going and playing weekends of shows really quick. And labels, so uh, Martyr Records, remember Martyr Records? Yep. They, they originally released the first uh, My Life is War LP. Livewire Records, remember Livewire? which was like Tim from Mouthpiece, a couple other guys, Ed, Ed from Mouthpiece's label. Mm-hmm. And um, State of Mind right away. We're like, we want to do a record with you guys. And I really wanted to do something with Livewire um, because I was friends with the, the First Step guys. And like, you know, First Step was affiliated with them. And, um, you know, obviously I love Mouthpiece. And I love Hands Tied. So like, you know, I was like, oh, I'm validated finally, you know. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I'm talking to him and I'm like, yeah, you know, we already have like, we already have like a demo that was recorded and released, which is five songs. We have a song that we recorded at that time that we didn't do vocals for. Uh, We could use that. And we just recorded, uh, you know, three new songs and we're going in the studio recording three more in like a month, (laughs) you know, and I was like, that could be the first record, you know, um, and we're going on tour in December to January. And, uh, you know, if we can have it out by December, that'd be great. And Livewire is like, whoa, we're thinking like August next year. And I'm like, yeah, we don't know. No. And then uh, Martyr was just like, wanted us to sign a contract. And I was like really afraid of that at the time. I was like, yeah. And then state of mind was like we can have the cd version to you by november and this was like this was like august of 2004 we had just played our first show like i think in july or the first you know this is like where and so um we did and then like and then they were like and then we'll do the seven inch version like late you know in like the spring which was fine because that you know 2004 cds ruled the universe Every not people were not buying vinyl. Everybody was buying CDs, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, digital downloading really wasn't that rampant yet. And uh, so we did the CD, and we sold so many of those fucking things. It was ridiculous. We went on that first tour, and like the shows were good, and like right away, you know, it was obvious that the band was something special. And then we worked with uh, Reflections Records. The goal was to go to Europe. I wanted to go to Europe really bad because the control was talking about going to Europe and then September 11th happened and that like all that talk went out the window. And so I really wanted to get to Europe. And so I was like, let's do a European record. And we recorded that reflections thing. And then, you know, Rick from Ferret with the first demo, because Andy Williams, who I grew up with in North Tonawanda, from every time I died, they were on Ferret. And he was like, you got to send this demo. This demo was amazing. 
you've got to send it to Ferret. So I did. And Ferret was always like, yeah, keep in touch, you know, with, with your plans, all that stuff. And then we recorded. I don't remember if we played the CBGB show with Bane first or we recorded the, the No Love, No Hope EP first, but it was all around the same time. Um, we played CBGB's. Rick from Fair came out and saw us. was like, yo, you guys are awesome. Let's stay in touch. And we recorded No Love, No Hope, which we, which Reflections was putting out, but then we sent CDRs of it to a bunch, well, I sent CDRs of it to a bunch of labels. And Victory reached out and was like, hey, we're interested. We think you'll, you'll uh, appeal to the same crowd as Rise Against and Comeback Kid. And Ferret reached out and was like, you know, you guys were really good live. We really like the demo. We really like these new stuff, this new stuff you're doing. What are your plans? What do you want to do? And uh, it was weird because we were touring. Dead Hearts played a lot of shows. We were doing a ton of weekends, um, a ton of weekends, you know, right out the, the bat, the band had been together like just a few months and we did our first like, you know, 10 day East coast run down to Florida and back. We were doing weekends in the Midwest, Northeast. Um, and we played Chicago a lot because I had friends in Chicago. We could always get booked there. And Ferret was like, or not Ferret, I'm sorry. Victory was like, Tony wants to fly you guys out here so you can play for him and audition. And I was just like, what the fuck is that? Like, <laughs> we literally just played Chicago six days ago. Like, you know, like we just did a weekend of shows. We played Chicago. Why didn't he just come see us? Tim from Rise Against was there. Why was the fucking Tony Brummel there? You know, like, like it was weird. And I didn't, that kind of like, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I, and Ferret, like, I think Ferret kind of signed us a little bit as like, you know, they hated victory. So they kind of wanted to be like, haha, we stole your cookies. <laughs> but also, you know, Andy, Andy from Every Time I Die was saying, you know, this guy's been in bands. He always tours really hard. He always works really hard. You know, give him a shot. And he'll, he'll, you know, he'll take it. And Rick at Ferret loves, loved the stuff. And Rick, after we signed, Rick said, you know, you are the first band we've ever signed from a demo. Like from hearing, you know, been interested in from a demo. So we, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so go-kart was like a big indie like they were like a fuck you to the man and the majors and stuff like that like they had all those like crazy like go-kart versus the corporate giant compilations and all those do you remember those yeah yeah so they were a big label but they were like a big indie ferret when we signed a ferret was funded by sony red so like they had like big big label money kind of funding them, and so the contract we signed initially and the money we were getting initially was like like crazy like it was crazy like I was just like some kid from well I mean I was thirty but like I'm just like some kid from North Tonawanda and like this they're like oh yeah you know we're we're gonna give you guys you know ten thousand dollars to buy a van and new equipment 
and we're going to give you guys a $20,000 recording budget, you know, and all this shit. And it was like, holy fuck, this is the real deal. You know, it's, it's time to like go on tour and never come home. Um, but mistakes were made (laughs) and, uh, you know, it, it, I, I don't think they really knew how to promote our band. Uh, they should have been promoting us to like, I just don't think they knew how to promote us. Like, cause we weren't, we weren't cool guys. We didn't look cool. Our records were good. The songs we wrote were good, but like we were very much a hardcore band. We were a melodic hardcore band. Um, and, you know, putting an ad for our record in AP magazine isn't going to sell more records you know what i mean like they should have focused on trying to get us on um you know similar tours like we should have you know and we did get offered we did get some great tours but you know because we're a fair a lot of tours we got we went out with heavy bands and we could we did okay on those tours we held our own because we did have heavy elements to our music but you know mistakes were made and i think Long term, I think Ferret was the better choice, but I think short term, if we had gone with Victory, I think we would have had an initial burst of interest that we didn't get that we didn't get with Ferret. Because also things, if when we signed to Ferret, things were changing. Um, by the time our record came out, Ferret was no longer doing things with Sony Red. They were like Warner Independent Music Group or something like that. And then within a couple of years of all that. Ferret ceased to exist, you know, and, and they became Good Fight. Like those guys left and started Good Fight Entertainment. So, you know, we tried real hard. We played like a hundred shows a year for three years, you know, and we, we, we toured as much as we could. And, um, but yeah. Now, when that you say, the, I'm sorry, when you say you played that, that December, January tour, right in the beginning of the band. I'm guessing you booked that yourself, but at some point, I would assume Ferret probably set you guys up with like a booking agent or whatever. No, we we got our own booking agent. Ferret did. It was before I think we signed to Ferret that we got we got the booking agent. Um, there's this girl Ramona from uh, Detroit. Um, she started booking us, and that was because we played shows with some of the bands that she was already booking and i think she was looking to fill out her roster so that's black iris booking so that's that's who started booking our tours um you know we still booked our own home shows uh um but yeah she she got us on tours and got us on support and all that stuff we never had a manager but we had a booking agent yeah i know sketchy dave and i booked you guys here in 2007 and i couldn't remember if we went directly through you guys or through her i i, I mean i, I want to say he probably did the legwork but i'm not sure uh who did we play with it was the minor times engineer it was it was probably a one-off show i want to say but maybe not uh the minor times engineer it was uh heavy hearted's first show and maybe like one or two other bands hmm yeah i probably would have booked that i probably would have taken the lead on that because like you know any, any like local stuff was was usually me who did the booking for, so and that would have been a one off, not a tour. Yeah, yeah, I feel like we went directly through you, but like I said, I, I can't really. My memory from my youth is way better than my memory as an adult for 
uh, non straight edge reasons for the most part. <laughs> um, but um, you you made it over to Europe eventually with Dead Hearts, didn't you? Though, because I know I interviewed Derek last summer, but I've I've interviewed like uh, forty or fifty people since then. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we went we went from like uh, Thanksgiving two thousand seven to like Christmas uh, Christmas Eve two thousand seven. We were there for like thirty days, like oh, exactly. Wow. Was that that was that your first and possibly only time uh, playing in Europe with bands? It's the only time I've ever been to Europe. Wow. And some of it was amazing, like the craziest shows you've ever played. Like, and some of it was really hard. Like, I think it was hardest on Derek, to be honest. Well, it might have actually been hardest on Josh because the second the plane landed, he quit the band. But, um, you know, uh, but I think Derek had a real hard time with being, you know, apart from his loved ones. And uh, we weren't really making, I mean, we, we did, it was a great tour, but there were some shows like, I just remember some of the, you know, every German show was like amazing. Austria was amazing. There were a couple of good shows in the UK, but we spent two weeks in the UK. And, you know, out of 14 shows, maybe five of them were good. And there would be like a Wednesday night show at like South End of the Sea. And it's like, there's nobody there. And you're like, what the fuck? We flew across an ocean to play to nobody. Like, it's so disheartening. And I know that's how touring goes. And like, But like, you know, when you have so much time and money invested in something and like, you know, you're on your third day without a shower and like, all three shows you played to maybe 15 people. And then, you know, we'd pull in the next night and there'd be like 400 kids there and like everybody knew our stuff. So like, you know, you'd have these, you'd have these like amazing highs and then these like crushing lows on that tour. Um, you know, and then we got back, we it ended on a high note, like the last like four shows were like amazing. And then we get back and, you know, one of our biggest strengths, which was our drummer, he quits. You know, and then a week later, we're playing in Florida to the biggest crowd we've ever played in, 2,500 people opening for Kill Switch Engage and Every Time I Die. And we had to get Richie back in the band just to play that show. Because um, Josh was like, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. So it was, it was, it was strange. It was, it was weird. But. Did you guys go on a lot of tours like the one you just mentioned? I know you said there was a lot of metalcore tours, but that's like a big... I mean, I know those bands got bigger later, too, but even by then, they were pretty big. Who, the, the Kill Switch? Yeah. Yeah, that was a one-off show. That was just okay. a one-off show that we did. Uh, but the tours we did... Um, I can tell you, hold on. I have all my tour landings right across. Let me go, let me go grab give me, yep. give me one second. I'll yep. grab them. So we did... Crime and Stereo Lifelong Tragedy in 2006. We did At All Costs and One Dead, Three Wounded. It's a pretty heavy tour. Those bands are heavy. Dead Hearts, Another Breath, of course. Probably the tour we fit the most on. Seventh Star, Daggermouth, Soldiers, and Dead Hearts. <laughs> Shy Halloon and Winds of Plague. First Blood, Death Before Dishonor, Bloodline Calligraphy, and Dead Hearts. And our pop punk tour, Dead Hearts with Fallen from the Sky. That was our last tour. And then Sick of It All, The Warriors, The Autumn Offering, and Dead Hearts. Oh, that's not all of our tours, but that's the ones I have laminates for still. 
a lot of those bands and especially that era is like the 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 genesis basically of like the face tattoos and like the yeah. crowd killing and everything yeah what would those kids think like it'd be a room full of them i'm guessing when you guys would play half the time on those tours right we did well with those with that crowd did you that that's before that that's before the Sonner tour half those shows were like really really good for us wow we played a show in Salt Lake City on that tour that kids were so into us, a dude got his ear punched off during our set. Wow. Like it was just like, what is, you know, it was weird because like we'd play, you know, here we are singing about emotions and feelings and, you know, and like there would be some shows where just like dudes would be killing each other and I'd be like, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's like I can't really picture those dudes getting into it but i mean those, you know. some of those guys got fucking dead hearts <laughs> neck tattoos wow that's there great. are there is a guy with a dead hearts neck tattoo of an angel with uh tomorrow never comes around it with one of our lyrics wow. and there's other guys with like the heart with the skulls and like it's it's yeah did you have any like <laughs> I mean, having a budget with like fair and stuff. Did you guys ever get any like well-known artists to design anything or anything? Or uh, Jake Bannon did the cover of the LP, um, but then I, you know, he got really mad at me because I, I asked him how it fit our concept, and I offered a suggestion, and he didn't like that I was, you know, suggesting how to do his art. So uh, fair, it was like Jeremy, you are no longer to talk to the artist directly. <laughs> <laughs> so all the wow. communication with him after the initial the initial like he sent us like some proofs and i i questioned it and uh it yeah i mean i have a way of communicating that rubs people the wrong way so <laughs> it, it 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 did so um yeah i wasn't allowed i wasn't allowed to communicate with him anymore but he did the cover of the lp wow um so a lot of a lot of a lot of touring then, right? Like you guys never you guys never went full time with that hearts either, though, right? But you were but we you did a hundred shows here. That's pretty big. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at it, I counted it up, I counted it up, and it was like like almost like there was it was like yeah, because we'd go out, you know, because we did a lot of weekends and we'd go out for like five weeks, then we'd be home, and then we'd go out for another five weeks, you know. Then we'd be home and then we'd go out for two weeks Then we'd be home, you know, and in between there, we were always doing weekends. You know, we did a, we did a tour with misery signals that it's actually really good. Um, I wish we had done more stuff with them because we really gelled with those guys really well. Um, yeah. The, the, the big thing that really broke, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, and I, I don't know if, Derek, I'm sure Derek and those guys remember it, but the one thing that really broke our heart, and nothing against those guys, and nothing against the band I'm about to talk about, but um, we played a show with Rise Against in Rochester, and it was insane. Like, we sold, and it was crazy because we went over so well with that crowd, and we we played Rochester, and, and nobody who saw us at that show ever came to another, another dead art show. We played with Rise Against when they were first like breaking big. It was a sold out show at Water Street. And this was really early on for us. And it was, we only had the first CD out, the Dead Hearts CD. 
and we brought two boxes of them at the show. So what's, what's a box of CD? 25 CDs, I think. Yeah, 25 CDs. And we sold two boxes like, like that, like right after we played. And uh, we didn't have any more with us because we barely brought it. And we were like, yeah, no one's going to care about it. So we had to go to Stefano's house because he had his distro at the time and get like another three boxes that he had in his distro. And we sold all of those too. And like we sold everything, I mean, the whole, we sold everything we had at that show. And the guys that Rise Against were like super stoked on our band. And then when we played, like I said, you know, we played Chicago again, like Tim came out. And then we were writing emails back and forth. And they were like, we want to go to bring you guys out as an opener. And the tour was supposed to be Dead Hearts, The Loved Ones, Comeback Kid, and Rise Against. There would have, there has never been a more perfect tour that had been offered our band before, since ever. Like that was like going to be the tour. Like I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is perfect. Right. So we had some conversations, we have some conversations and then, you know, we get like a rough itinerary of where it's going to go. And it's like, this is like a real deal tour. Like, you know, 30 days, like we're out there, you know, we're doing U S and Canada and then get the email. Sorry, guys, we've decided to bring from autumn to ashes out as a co-headliner instead of another opener. Um, you know, we'll make it up to you. And uh, we were, we were crushed. Like, like we were crushed because not only that, like we all loved that wake of the dead album that, that come back. I mean, everybody did, you know, and, up into that point, you know, I remember Tom, I liked Rise Against. I really liked uh, that uh, uh, was it, Revolutions and Minutes or whatever. The second album with the grenade on it. Uh, I really liked that record. And I thought that Siren Sounds, the Counterculture or whatever, the new one that was that was out at the time, the one that they first started bringing in. But that record was pretty good too. And it was just like, we were just like heartbroken. Like we're like, that would have been the perfect tour. And uh, they, they, yeah, they were off the races down to bigger and better. And we never, we never got, we never got to the, we never, we never got even close to having that kind of opportunity again. Um, because by that, by the time that tour was over, they were huge. I mean, they were yeah. so fucking big, you know. Yeah, they really blew up. Yeah, and they're, they're still huge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, but at the time, that would have been like the perfect tour for us. And I remember we were all really, really upset that that didn't happen. Um, and that was way early on. Like that was like, I want to say that was before we were even on Ferret, or when we no, it was when we first signed because we signed a Ferret in May of two thousand five, and we didn't do our record until we didn't record our record until June of two thousand six, because the the No Love No Hope EP came out like in between there. We used to have any songs written, so. Yeah, that rise against thing. That's 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 a bummer. Those guys, I, I was definitely into those guys too. And and it was so crazy seeing like them turn into this like just like commercial rock band, basically. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, but that dude yeah. Tim, of all like the people in punk and hardcore, he had one of the best voices. Absolutely. And and like I still talk, I still talk to their bass player Joe every now and then. Um, their guitar player at that time, I, I was really friendly with. He hasn't been in the band since that first like big record. 
I don't, I don't think he could handle the pressure or something. I, I don't really know. I don't, I can't speak for him, but he quit like right after they were done with that tour cycle. Um, but I still talk to Joe every now and then, you know, just quick things here or there, but um, like on Instagram DMs or whatever, but yeah, like they became a huge band. Like, and I don't even really know who their fan base is. It's weird. <laughs> you know, is it just like normal people? Like, it's just like, you know, they're like turning off their eye blind to, to listen to Rise Against. I don't know. I don't know. Well, what's weird is I think it was like 2007. I got this random like pizza job here in Rochester. And like, it was just like a bunch of like stoner, like drunk, like typical pizza shop workers, basically not. Yeah. Whole, but, you know, and one of the dudes who was like, that like I'm, I'm describing comes up to me and he's like so you like like punk rock and hardcore right and i don't know if it's like this for you but when everybody asks me that i'm always like what the fuck shitty band is this person gonna ask me if i like now right, it's, never, right. it's never anything good you know but he was like do you like rise against and i was like yeah those guys are awesome and i didn't have their newer stuff at the time he let me borrow like three of their cds or however many had come out by that point because i only had like the the fat one and like maybe one one that came out after that you know uh-huh. but they put a lot of good stuff out and like you're saying like they I don't know what the crowd is either. Like that's the one person I've met that is like a fan of theirs over the years, you know, but they definitely were on the radio, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. Pretty- and, and like, you know, I see like, you know, I follow Joe on it on, on so, you know, social media and I see like, and one of their, one of their uh, road crew guys too, I'm friends with him too. And they're posting stuff and they're playing like the huge crowds. And you know what? I just saw them. Like I saw them very recently. Um, I saw them, they opened for the Misfits and they played my favorite song and I was so stoked. Like my favorite, like Rise Against song. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I haven't thought about this song in a long time. And then I saw them again, like the end of last year and they didn't play a single song I knew. <laughs> like, I didn't know anything. I was like, I don't know any songs, <laughs> you know, but it was like a festival crowd, you know, like different, you know. Yeah. Different, so. Um, What, I guess that's like the biggest tour that you guys didn't get that you would have liked to have gotten. Like what's the biggest, like most successful tour you went on? Like you said the death before us honor went pretty well, but like, were there, were there other like big tours that were. Well, the sick of it all tour was good for the most part. The European tour was pretty good for the most part. Uh, you know, even that dagger mouth tour that our booking agent put together was pretty good. Um, you know, it was just, the last like year, we, the 2008, like towards the end, like, you know, our shows at home were good. Um, and so our shows out of town were good, but like things were changing rapid, rapidly. Like, you know, Epic Hardcore was falling out of favor, you know, and, and, and so like, you know, we still had some good shows, but like it was getting harder and harder and you know by the time 2008 like we're two years two years removed from our lp that you know people liked and there was supposed to be the live at cbgb seven inch that's supposed to come out in between there it's kind of a stopgap, um but it didn't end up coming out till after we broke up you know uh so there was just like the interest wasn't there so like you know and we got a new drummer that didn't really gel with us at all and like the last you know eight months we were a band nine months we were a band or whatever um you know a lot of those uh, out of town shows were really rough um so i remember like you know i remember that there were good stuff but like 
the bad stuff is what I remember the most. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. just like being in like fucking, you know, just being in Florida and just fucking being like, fuck, what are we doing? Like, you know, gas was four bucks a gallon. Now it's fuck. I, I don't know how fans are going to tour right now. It's gas where I live, gas is $7, you know, but like at the time, like yeah. gas had shot up from like two fifty to $4 a gallon. And, you know, we were barely scraping a hundred dollars per show for some of those shows. And, you know, we went out with, with, you know, uh, uh, you know, we went out with that pop punk band and we were friends with those guys, but like that probably wasn't the best idea. Like, you know, sometimes business decisions need to be made and we, you, you make, like you want to go hang out with your friends. So, you, you know, Oh, we get along with those guys. So let's go out on tour with them. And like, maybe we should have made different decisions, but we didn't. So. I feel like that was either right before or right around the time though, when like those kind of tours started to pop off more. Cause like you have like such gold from Rochester, even polar bear club from Rochester, like those bands would do like tours with as many hardcore bands as they would like pop punk. It seemed like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, you know, it was right at the beginning of pop punk with breakdowns, like becoming a thing. Yeah. But falling, falling from the sky didn't have breakdowns. They were just pop punk, <laughs> you right. know? Um, and I think, you know, Rust Belt Lights started right after Dead Hearts broke up, and I think those guys tried to, you know, do not not pop up breakdowns, but played a lot of those shows and tours. And I felt like they were really going for it really hard for a couple of years, um, you know. But it was a very different animal than Dead Hearts was. So, and like I think from what we were talking about, a couple of the earlier bands kind of broke up abruptly, but it sounds kind of like you kind of saw the writing on the wall a little bit earlier with Dead Hearts, like with the way some of the shows were going. No, not really, because we had plans like, you know, it, so, OK, let's 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 talk about the end, the end of Dead Hearts. So at some point in 2008, Ferret comes to us and says, we can't honor your contract. The, the the world the music world has changed so much people are downloading records aren't selling as much blah 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 you know uh every time i die i'd already jumped ship ship and gone to epitaph um you know they're like we are renegotiating all of our band's contracts because for the follow-up record they were supposed to give us like twice the budget the recording budget that we'd already gotten like forty thousand dollars like you know, twenty thousand dollars in tour support, like all this, like crazy stuff. They're like, we can't honor that. So you have the option of either renegotiating with us, or we'll let you out of your contract. So we thought about it, and we thought, you know what, we can sign to another label. Let's shop to other labels. That's and that's really what our booking agent was like. Oh, you guys should shop to other labels. So that's what we did, and uh, she liked she had a good relationship with a lot of labels and like i remember stillborn was like yeah i think the band like jamie johnson like i think the band's really good and then i wrote jamie johnson and i was like i was like hey man remember me and then i think he got disinterested because it was me but you know I, I don't know for sure but it never went anywhere not that i was like you know planning on going to stillborn anyway but i thought it was funny that like as soon as i wrote him an email like his contact stuff eulogy made us an offer and at the time eulogy was doing a lot of shit mutiny by fucking set your goals just come out and like you know all this kind of stuff and so i was like okay cool 
you know, we negotiated this contract with Eulogy. Um, we were we were going to record with um, oh, what the hell's his name? With Greg, uh, who used to play in Shai Halud, and he was in Misery Signals, and he does Silver Bullet Studios in Connecticut. And Eulogy said we can give you five thousand dollars to record. And uh, Greg was like, so you guys can stay at my place because his, his parents' house was the, was the recording studio. We'll work through the record. You guys can stay here. We'll knock it out. I'll just take $2,000. You guys can keep the other three and you know out the door. So we were like, okay, that's what we're going to do. Then we were planning on going to like South and Central America. And then we were going to go to Europe again. And you know, Derek was having a really hard time on that tour because we really weren't making any money. And I think he was, you know, having a hard time being away from his loved ones. Um, and the day we got the, so my uncle was our lawyer and the day we got like the finalized contract from eulogy, Derek looked at it and was like, pretty much he quit. <laughs> it's just like, I don't want to do this anymore, you know? And, uh, and it wasn't that he didn't want to do it anymore. It's just that, you know, things weren't, my iPad's dying, so I got plenty of, things weren't really working the way they had worked the previous year. Plus, you know, I think what really hurt, um, what really hurt was that uh, the drummer we had was, was we didn't like it is essentially what happened. I mean, he's, 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 he is what he is, but you know, we didn't really, um, he didn't gel with us. He was, he was a little younger. He's from a different area of the country. I think he thought that, you know, he was like sleeping with other people's girlfriends on tour and stuff like that. Like, you know, it was like his first like time being in a touring band. And like, so it was a kid in a candy store kind of stuff. Um, and he's a great drummer, but at the same time, he wasn't, I didn't feel he was very professional. And by that time, like, you know, not that we were a professional band because we were a hardcore band, but when you're out on the road, you got to treat people with respect. You got to respect where you're staying. You got to like be a well-oiled machine. You got to do everything. And the guy wouldn't even put his fucking symbols in a road case or in a fucking symbol bag. You know what I mean? Like, come on guy. Like we got to put all this shit in our trailer. Like we can't just have like fucking like fucking drum stands like rolling around the trailer, put in a fucking case, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. So the band, you know, Derek kind of had like our roadie kind of was like, Hey, you know, Derek's talking about quitting the band. I'm like, Oh, come on. Derek's had that kind of conversation before we, you know, and then Derek like told us for real. He wanted to quit the band. I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that was that we played after he quit. I think we played, we played two good shows after we quit. Um, we played like Johnson, Tennessee. And we played uh, West Virginia. And then we canceled one show and we played Dunkirk and that was really good. And then we announced our last, and we, sometime in between there, we announced that um, we were playing a, a last show in six weeks. And then that show was in gravel. So. Now, um, I know you guys ended up playing an old ghost together. So, like, was obviously there wasn't any like beef or anything. Like, were you ever nope. like, 
were you were you still planning on like playing music after that though or were you kind of like i've, I've kind of had it with this or i i feel like i kind of had it with this i think um you know and there was no hard feelings i understood i understood derek's reasons mm-hmm. you know what i mean like there was never any hard feelings and we stayed friends um i remember him like you know right after the band breaking up him coming over and helped me work on my car and stuff so like you know there was never, and that's why the reunion happened and stuff, you know, like, you know, um, there was never any hard feelings. I mean, I was upset. I was, I was very depressed. And I think that's part of the reason why my first marriage ended shortly after that. Uh, Cause I was not motivated to do anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, that was, that was that, you know, and then we did old ghosts just because like, I had written some songs and I wanted to like play music, you know, with my friends, you know, there's a couple, a couple of things with old ghosts before you get into tuning. Uh, oh, one you mentioned earlier playing, uh, that show in New Jersey that the, the dude from Nora had put on where only one person showed up where you guys didn't play or whatever. Right. I don't think, I don't think you guys played this show, but you had hit me to a couple bands from Ohio around the time you're an old ghost, like, uh, dead words and maybe one other band. And uh, they played a show with you guys that was pretty well attended here. But then I booked another show with them and their friends band and literally like one or two people showed up and the bug. Yeah. Eventually Bobby from the bug jar is like, "Uh, we got to call this. We're not going to be able to (laughs) do that. And I felt bad. Even those guys felt worse though, because I walked by those guys at one point. I don't think their drummer realized that I was the dude doing the show because he was like, man, we drove all the way here for this shit or something like that. You know, and I was just like, we were both like apologizing. What's that? Yeah, because we played with them. We played with them at the Bug Jar. Yeah. I remember that. And that show was pretty good. Yeah, that one did pretty good. But then I think they wanted to come back again. And you guys couldn't play. And I couldn't get any good, like, support bands. But I was like, I still want to do the show because I liked their bands or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, But yeah. literally, no. I think I I think I think gave them, like, 40 bucks out of my pocket, which, you know, like, now you would get, like, down the street with gas money or whatever, you right, know? Right, but right, right, right. At yeah. the time, I was like, this is, you know, and, and they understood. They 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 felt bad for like kind of making that comment or whatever, you know? And then I was like, right. you know, I understand. Um, but what I was getting at with that was after that though, I, I, I referenced in the intro of this episode, I think old ghost played the last show that I booked here in 2012 too, with like, uh, Kev, I think Kevin and Adam might've been in, the, in their band, uh, beardage. And then yeah. I think job squad, this like wrestling band played too. Um, I want to say you guys were on that show though. So it's it yeah, like, we played with beardage for sure. Yeah. At the bug jar. I think that was the last show that I booked too. Cause I know I booked a couple shows with you guys, but I want to say you guys were on we the played, very last one. When, when I was, cause old ghost is still together without me. But right. Um, when I was in old ghost, we played the bug jar twice. Yeah. And I know play, and we played there with beardage. So I, yeah. I, I would say that tracks. Yes. I think that's the show too, because I was like, after I booked that show that, that nobody showed up to, I was like, man, I don't want to book any more shows after this. You know, like I was like 30, 31 at the time. Uh-huh. And then, and then I was like, but I can't go out like this. I got to book at least one more. You know what I mean? Right. So I think that's how that, that ended up. pretty good. I remember that show being pretty good too. All, Old Ghost was weird because like in Buffalo, it seemed like nobody cared, but those Rochester shows we played were pretty good. Like people yeah. seemed to dig us. No, that was a good show. And that's, and I remember that night turning to my girlfriend and be like, okay, this is it. I'm not doing it anymore after this. Right. You know? And now <laughs> fast forward to 10 years later, I'm finally getting the itch to do it again, I guess. So, but like, I know there was a couple bands after Old Ghost, obviously, but um, kind of getting into into the west coast a little bit like what kind of brought you out out to california uh so i 
I've worked in education for like the past like 14 years. Um, and I had an opportunity to come out here and work at a college that was a huge step forward for my career. Um, and I took it, <laughs> you know, like it was, I was, I'd been at the college I was working at in Buffalo for seven years since Dead Hearts had broken up. And I realized, I recognized that like there was nowhere to go at, you know, there was nowhere to move up at that college. Like I had already moved up as high as I was going to get. And so it was like, I wanted to look at other colleges in Buffalo, but I realized that like the skill set that I had, the positions that I was be eligible for, it was always like the same, like batch of people like plugging in at different colleges doing that for a few years and then moving around um and i was like yeah they're more qualified and they're going to get those positions and buffalo as a job market kind of is very stagnant um you know this is 2014 when i started looking elsewhere uh because also where i lived got seven feet of snow in you know 16 hours and uh I was like, I, I can't deal with this anymore. Like, this is fucking crazy, right? Um, and it was always my dream to live in California. And I had applied at a couple colleges. Like, I had gone to Pittsburgh and done a really good interview. And I thought I nailed that job. And I was crushed when they, you know, they called me. And they said, it's down between you and one other person. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Anytime it's always down between me and another person, I get it. And I didn't get it. And I was, like, really, really crushed. And um you know i'm separated now but my wife at the time was like well, why don't you look in california near fairfield and why don't you look in idaho you know and i'd gone for a bunch of i'd done a bunch of like skype interviews and stuff with like other places and um there was a college in idaho that really wanted me and uh they actually after i already landed the job here in california and actually was uh at the airport heading to start out here they called me and asked me if I would take the position. I was like, yeah, live in the Bay area versus living in like fucking Idaho. I'm going to live in the Bay, you know? Um, so yeah, so I came, I came out here and I worked at that college for six and a half years. And uh, now, and that was, that was all private nonprofit. Now I work for the County. So in education still. Um, so yeah, it's great. And I'm sure you probably already knew a lot of people from like the hardcore scene out there from, you know, playing shows and whatnot over the years, but like, did you kind of like immerse yourself into it right away or did you kind of take your time? I mean, yeah, I started going, so I landed here in uh, October of 2015 and my family didn't join me until February of 2016. Um, so I started going to shows like right away, um, you know, but most of the people that I'm friends with, from the hardcore scene live in Southern California. They don't live in Northern California. Um, so I did have a few friends, like uh, like I started hanging out with uh, Matthew Cotty from like Monster Squad. Like I knew him kinda, like he had offered to play drums for Dead Hearts when we were looking for a drummer at some point. Um, you know, and I, I was friends with a couple people from up here, uh, but not crazy. So I had to make new friends. Um, you know, because a lot of the people that I was friends with are older now and they're not around, you know. 
Uh, but yeah, I started going to shows like immediately start going to Gilman Street shows like all the time, like all the time, like even stuff I wasn't interested in, I would just go. Um, so yeah, I immediately started going to shows and like, it took a little while because, you know, I'm older and like, you know, when you're in New York, you hear somebody talking about something you know about, you kind of involve yourself in their conversation. You know what I'm talking about? Like mm-hmm. you're like at a show, you don't know two guys, but they're like talking about like some bullshit that you know some bullshit about. You're like, oh yeah, totally. You know, mm-hmm. they don't do that here. They look at you like you're a fucking cop. So like, you know, especially if you're old, loud, and fat like I am. So like, you know, it took it took a little it took a little while, you know, to make friends and kind of get people to get used to me being around. Um, but uh, yeah, I started going to shows right away and. Just, I've seen some fucking amazing shows out here, <laughs> like just like crazy, crazy shit. Um, were 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 you ever like homesick, or were there things you missed about being like being away from Buffalo? Like, or has that happened at all since you've been there? I, I miss the I miss the food more than the people. <laughs> um, you know, I did go back. I did go back uh, in twenty nineteen. So three and a half years. Uh, January, February 2019, I went back for 10 days. Uh, And I also got to catch the Alone in the Crowd reunion. I went out to Philly with my friend Alex. Um, But I ended up getting really sick. Like, I went, like, I got really sick and, like, had a miserable time. And, like, I don't know, it was okay, you know, but it's not like, yeah, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if I have to go back to Buffalo. Like, it's not. It, it, you know, I, I might go back to visit, you know, um, but it's not, you uh, know, I, I don't believe in God, but God bless anybody who's still kind of slug it out in Buffalo. Yeah. The snow it's, is, the snow is definitely a, a selling point, you know, the snow, the, the job market, rough yeah. business, man. So, you know, yeah. I would definitely move somewhere warmer. My girlfriend's a big fan of all four seasons, though. So we, uh, yeah, we're gonna be here with the kids for at least the foreseeable future. Well, also, you know, housing costs are like insane, like yeah. absolutely insane, like, like unbelievably high. Um, so that's also something you got to keep in mind. Like, it is it is not cheap to live in California for sure. Yeah. Plus, it keeps getting hotter and everything keeps burning down. So. Yeah, I mean, real estate in Buffalo and Rochester in general is pretty cheap too, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, mean, I talk to people from not even California, but from like Virginia and other places, and not Northern Virginia. You know what I mean? Like just like like random parts of Virginia, and they're like, yeah, compared to where what you paid for your house, like we we wouldn't even be able to get anything here. You know what I mean? Right, so, right, right. Um, but like with bands and stuff, like when you moved out there, like were you like eventually all playing another band, or was it just like you know? No, you know. I, I thought I thought Modern Problems was going to be my last band, um, you know, and uh, I I didn't start really, you know, I, I moved here in 2015. I didn't really start looking for someone to do a band, I don't think, until 2018. So I was here for like three years, it, it, you know, um, and, you know, tuning got together. like late 2018 like fall of 2018 is where everything started to gel i think and now with that 
did you do you write like the music too or just like because i know you're obviously you're singing but like do you do you have a, a big hand in the, in the guitar parts and stuff too or i wrote all the music except oh, wow. for the song pacific the pacific on the new record the music was most it was it was written by matt our guitar player um and i wrote the lyrics so so like our first lp was supposed to be the demo um but then some crazy german was like yeah i would like to put this out so we're like okay <laughs> skip a step and then you know the the second the second lp you know for a beacon and impossible seas the third the third 12 inch there was a little more input from everybody but like you know the the the, the music is and lyrics are still me so um, but we're gelling more as a band like the chemistry well i don't know now because we haven't tried to write new stuff we got a new drummer now so i don't know if we haven't tried to write new stuff yet he's only just learned the set list you know did you guys like pause completely when when the pandemic and everything happened or like were, were you guys still trying to write music and stuff or <laughs> so we were fortunate we we did a tour with Slapshot um january february 2020 i mean it was seven days whatever it's not really a tour but you know we did those shows uh february you know january to february 2020 and then we played with like excel and black flag february 29th and then like two and a half weeks later everything shut down but we had already recorded an lp so uh dave from indecision was at our last two shows that we played in Southern California. And so he, you know, I sent him the recording and he's like, yeah, I want to put this out. So I remember talking to him in like March of March of 2020, like, you know, getting together a game plan and everything, thinking that the pandemic would have passed <laughs> by the time our first, so by the time uh, defining the purpose came out and that came out, uh, late summer of 2020 um and then you know the world still completely went to shit and then things got a little lax in like uh you know the beginning of 2021 and so we started practicing again uh and you know in that whole time my marriage had fallen apart in 2020 actually before the slack shot tour my marriage my marriage fell apart um and so you know but we ended up kind of having to live together because the pandemic hit a lot longer than planned. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of uh, fuel for lyrics and stuff. And so I had written like a whole record, um, but I'd written four songs, whatever. And uh, we we're like, okay, cool. Let's, let's just get together and, and work on this. And we ended up recording another record in February, 2021, which then in turn came out um summer of 2021 and then we played a show in september of 2021 and then omicron hit and the world went, <laughs> went insane again and so then we just played uh we just played we've only played two shows since you know we played one show in 2021 and then we just played like three weeks ago i think you played i know i talked to you uh before the interview about how i'm gonna interview bent blue pretty soon but i think you also <laughs> played uh with a band that has a Rochester kind of connection, uh, Jade Dust. Yes, we did. Uh, yeah, their drummer James is from this area. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, right? I know. And his his cousin his cousin is from Buffalo, um, and his cousin one of my friends tried to 
beat the living hell out of him in a show in 1997. <laughs> um, so we all, we all, we all had a good laugh at that because they played the show we played it back in May. Um, you know, we had a good laugh talking about old Buffalo stories and I, I got to meet that guy from Rochester, which I didn't remember ever meeting him before. Um, yeah, that show was actually pretty good. That, that, that show. Um, we had a good time. That was a, that was a good one. It was weird. It was a Tuesday night, you know, and I thought it was going to be really bad. I thought it was going to be like that dead word show you were mentioning. You know? like, <laughs> um, but no, it was, it was good. It was good. It's a good show. Have both the two shows you guys have played since, uh, you know, everything kind of reopened or whatever you want to call it. Has that, have those both been in the Bay area then or. No, one was in Southern California. The one we played with Bent Blue. That was that program in Fullerton, in Fullerton, which is Southern California, Orange County. That show was good. It's with Berthold City and, and Ben Blue. Berthold City is another good one too. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Like California, I mean, I know they got a, a long-standing tradition, but right now there's just so many good bands in California. It's crazy. I agree, wow. but California is huge, so it's like, you know, where we are in the Bay. I mean, we're we're you know, we're as far as far from Southern California, you know, as far from LA as Buffalo is from New York city, you know? Yeah. So it's like a whole nother world. True. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to play. I think we're going to, I think we're booking a show for August now too. So I don't know. And I honestly, at first I, I, I feel like I probably knew, but I'm not sure that I realized that indecision had been running this whole time. Like he put out some really solid shit like 20 years ago, but um and then i actually bought some shit from him during during like the lockdown and everything so uh-huh. i got reacquainted but um how has it been working with him though? Has, has that been a pretty good relationship or whatever dave is awesome yeah, yeah he's a great guy and like you know he just he just loves putting out records like and uh you know he if he likes a band he wants to put out your record he's just down for whatever you know he's he, he just we're like hey we have these ideas he's like great let's do it you know and then he's like, hey, let's do this, this, this. And we're like, yeah, great, let's do it, you know. Um, so we're planning on doing another, you know, he, I talked to him uh, earlier this year. I said, hey, you know, we're thinking about doing another record. He's like, you got it. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm down, you know. So, I mean, he, the records did okay for him. The the, the Beacon and Impossible Seas, that sold out. Um, he pressed more of Defining the Purpose because that was, you know, that order went in before the world really locked down, locked down. So like he was able to do a larger pressing, but now because pressing plants are so backed up, it's easier to do smaller, quicker pressings. So, uh, but he sold out of the second record, and, you know, he seems to be happy with, with what we're doing. So I just wish we could play more shows. It's just, we had a whole weekend book with Ben Blue, but then the drummer we had, who had been our drummer since the beginning was like, yeah, uh, I want to go to my friend's birthday party. And we're like, uh, that's not cool. Like we already confirmed these shows and booked them. And he's like, yeah, but I really got to go to this birthday party. So uh, we tried to find a replace, like a, a fill in, but we were like two weeks out from the shows. He's like, you know, we couldn't find a fill in. And then, uh, so we just threw him out and then started to start fresh. We, start, we have a new drummer now. Um. So I guess it sounds like you're just kind of hoping to play some more shows. Any, any, there's nothing really kind of like on the horizon. I know we're doing, we're doing, we have a weekend we're doing in September with a bigger band, but I can't, it's not announced yet. So I can't talk about it. That's cool. And uh, we're, we're doing, I think, I think we're going to do a show with dry socket from Portland. I think we're going to play with 
with them. I wanted to do the whole run. They're doing a uh, East Coast or West Coast run. It's like seven shows. I wanted to do the whole run because I was like, I have the, the vacation time. Let's do it. Um, but our uh, our bass player was unavailable because he's going to be in Wisconsin visiting family then. Um, so it was like, uh, yeah. So I think we're just we're just going to play the Bay shows. I think we're going to do. We're definitely doing Oakland, but I think we might do Sacramento too. I don't know. You know, I'll put I'll put the link to like the tuning Bandcamp and everything in the show notes. But is there anything else you want to like plug or promote before I? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could you could Spotify rules the world. So why don't you put the spot the link to the Spotify on there instead, or okay. both? Both would be and, and the Instagram, the 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 tuning Instagram, and you could link my Instagram too. Plug my Instagram. That's always good. I have a lot oh. of followers. So. Oh, one other thing, I, I guess. Uh, I know you were doing a little a podcast for a little while. Are you still working on that, or? Yeah. So here's what happened. So I did those three episodes, and if you listen to episode three, you could hear that my voice is starting to go. Because like the next day, I was so fucking sick. It wasn't. I had COVID six months ago. It wasn't COVID, but I was like really sick, and I just started to recover. Like I lost my voice. Like I got laryngitis and like I couldn't speak for like six or seven days. And then I just started to get better. And then we played that show. And um, that show we played back in, in May, I had these, I have these decibel reducing uh, uh, earplugs ear that I wear um, sometimes. And I cleaned them, but I must not have cleaned them good enough uh because i got a double massive ear infection wow like a week after that show and uh in my left ear it was so bad that the the pressure behind my eardrum um and the infection pushed all the pus and shed and and perforated my eardrum (laughs) and i had a double ear infection i can i can hear out my right side fine now but my left still sounds like a blown speaker it could take up to three months for it to to heal So like, I just haven't been in the mood to sit down and like, I mean, with you, I'm talking, but like, you know, we, you know, it's not just me sitting in a room talking to my iPad. I'm actually talking and conversing, Yeah. Um, but it kind of sucks talking because my, my ear just sounds like a blown speaker, like in my head. Um, So I I haven't been eager to really uh, do a fourth episode, but I will. Well, your podcast is different too. Like that was a big problem for me at first. And that's like how you notice, like I cut the intro with you live tonight. Like I can't, I couldn't talk by myself in the beginning. Cause I was like, oh, this really? is, I was like, I, I feel weird. Like I, I sound like a robot or I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, but it was like that. It was like George Costanza, like with the books or I can't, I can't read cause listen to myself talk or whatever. Right. Right. You know, well, and, you know, so with me, there we go. I uh, I understand and I get that. Like if you listen to the first two episodes, they're a little awkward, and there's like some weird edits and stuff in there. Uh, but then if you listen to the third episode, the last episode I did, it's much much better. Like there's not weird edits, and like you know it feels like more natural with the flow and everything like that. Um. And I feel like I could do a, a good episode now. Yeah. I've gotten through under my belt, but uh, it's just, it's, it's been tough because I haven't been feeling well. Yeah. I did like a new music one from like my last, like two episodes back. And that, and that's where I'm more like, now I can kind of, I feel more natural because I'm not talking maybe on there, you know? And it's like, uh-huh. 
at first though, I was like, I would send people like what I would record before I would put on the podcast. And they were like, yeah, you, that's, that sounds really like you're reading it right out of the <laughs> book or whatever, you know? So yeah, well, mine, mine purposely sounds like that. Like, you know, it's supposed to be more audio booky. You're right. I remember you saying that in the beginning when you first started posting it. Yeah. So right, right, that makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I'll link that in the show notes too, then obviously. So people can check that out when you start doing more in the, in the first three are up there, obviously. So, all right. um, but yeah, any, anything else before I uh, do this little quick outro, I guess. Nope. That's it. All right. That's going to wrap up episode 82. Uh, I want to thank Jeremy for doing the interview. Um, as always, thanks to Greg Benoit, Jim Byrne, and Rob Antonucci for all the help with the podcast. Uh, thanks to my family for always putting up with these shenanigans. Um, as always, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. You'll get all the information on the upcoming episodes. Uh, we got some more coming out real soon. So see everyone real soon and stay safe. All right, man. Thanks a lot.